Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 23, 1996, Scream, with Wes Craven, an army of TV actors, modern horror's finest final girl, and more Easter eggs than an MCU movie. Jacob. Yes. And let's face it, Sydney, your mother was no Sharon Stone. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as it ships and cracks Where secrets lie in the border fires and the humming wires Yeah man, you know you're never coming back Past the square, past the bridge, past the mills, past the stack on a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? I'm very good. Excited to talk about my favorite subgenre of anything. I was going to say, this is an episode that is 100% just right up your alley again, so why don't you take us into 1996's Scream. Why do you think we picked this one? Well, I mean, the obvious reason was um, we there's have... There's a new movie. There's a new movie. Um, <laughs> Scream 5, and you, you pitched this to me. Of We don't always do episodes that coincide with, with new films. No. But I think that this is very much in both of our wheelhouses and, you know... I'm a I'm a slasher obsessive, and you've seen all of them too. <laughs> yeah, and so plus I think it's safe to say that for our generation, guys that are in their mid 30s to late for like early 40s, let's say late 40s. Jesus Christ, I was killing us. <laughs> but I'm uh, not that fucking old yet. <laughs> but for us, it's it's kind of like a. I don't think it's out of line to call it a seminal or even touchstone horror movie. And then it's also become a, a seminal and touchstone horror movie for a generation below us. I think for other reasons, uh, part of which, you know, it is that it's extended from 1996, now 25 years on yeah. to be, to have like a fifth movie. But the one thing I was thinking about after seeing uh, the latest one is that five movies in 25 years actually isn't that many, especially for slashers. You know, because this is this is a subgenre that it was more or less uh, very lovingly sending up that, you know, during the 80s would literally produce with some franchises one a year, like with Friday the 13th. They were in a really good clip, though, at the beginning, because I was rewatching all of them to prep for this. And, 
you have 96 for the first, then 97, the next fucking year is Scream 2. Right. And then 2000. Less than a year. Less than a year. And then 2000 is Scream 3. And Scream 3 is only slightly delayed because of Columbine. Isn't that part oh, of is it, that, too? Oh, is that true? Well, I think that there were there was some trepidation to go back to that well because it was like, nobody wants to watch a bunch of teenagers kill each other in a high school right now. Yeah. So I think that was also part of why they uh, moved the series to L.A. because they shot a lot of them in Carolina. Is that correct I to believe, start? I believe they shot... Most of them in North Carolina. I do know like the big awesome ending shot of the first one is California. It's like, right. It's like, like Northern California, I think. Um, but I know they just shot the new one back in North Carolina. Right. In Wilmington. Well, because the, that's where Dawson's Creek was shot too, I believe. Well, it's interesting because now the, the uh, most recent Halloween's have both shot in, in North Carolina. Right, so well, and that like, has more to do with Rough House, though, right? Because they're based out of South Carolina, right? I, I just, it's just, but I find it interesting that the two giant slasher franchises are both kind of hanging around the South, the South, because you know, I mean, Halloween two, um, Rob Zombies was shot in Atlanta, sure. Um, so it's just, they just happens to bring. I think it's, I don't know what it is, but um, <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, that has as much to do with tax incentives and everything. Yeah, too. I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but but no, it it distinctly like three is where the series kind of takes a, a turn, both stylistically and frankly in terms of quality too. But let's let's get to the first two. What what was the first time, or when was the first time? Do you remember watching the first Scream? I remember it every fucking element of seeing it. The the rental process, so. Um, I'll try to make this short, but in the summer of 97, um, when it was out on VHS, it was, it was before I started working in the summer. So I was 13 going on 14. So going into, um, eighth grade and I had wanted to see scream so bad. And some people who like had cool parents or had older brothers or siblings who could take them had seen it. Everyone was talking about it at school. I was already a huge horror fan. I was already into a lot of slasher stuff. I didn't realize I was obsessed with slashers quite yet. I hadn't like codified that. Sure. But I, I loved it. And so there was a video store in the grocery store in Three Lakes, Wisconsin that I ended up working at that at that store for six years, three six summers. Before I started working there, they had they had a VHS section and they had one copy of Scream. Because it's like a grocery store one for like people yeah. are vacationing in rural Wisconsin, right? And I would go there every fucking day and hope they had it in. So what I would do is I would go, I knew there was a place that would keep the tapes that had just been turned in and let you look through them. Like, we haven't put this on the shelf yet. Do you want to see it? I remember going to the counter exactly where it was, and I realized they had Scream. My brother's behind me. I go, dude, they have it. He's like, oh, my God. Speaking as a former uh, video store employee, you were definitely the most annoying oh, customer ever. I can guarantee because I was like, again, I'm like 13 years old. I'm this like fucking bullheaded kid. He's like, is it here yet? Scream back. It's no, scre kid, fuck off. Yeah, like I hate my job. What are you doing here? And I would have rented it if I worked there and kept it at home just so you couldn't see it. I went, out of spite. Fuck you. Um, you would have ruined my <laughs> life. But I brought it home. It was a one night rental. And I watched it like at like five in the afternoon by myself. I my, my brother was not there by myself. And I'm like, just amazing. I mean, it was everything I wanted. It was fucking cool. It was like, 
I think even at the, it was that perfect age too. I'm like, cause I had never really seen a lot of quote unquote meta stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is like the coolest, smartest thing ever. Like they put the rules in place and then I watched it immediately again. Sure. I rewinded it and I, I rewound it. We had dinner. I remember we had chicken and then I went back in the TV room and watched it yet again. I had some chicken <laughs> and I went back for some more murder. Yep. And that was, but it, it was, I was so just fucking jazzed after I saw it. I thought it was the coolest movie. Um, watching again, I think a lot of it still holds up. Um, if oh, 100%. If, if like, yeah. To be clear, the first movie is still a bona fide classic. Like, it's the, it's one of the few that I throw on that I just sit there and go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. it. <laughs> well, the, the script is like, the script is, is really tight. Like, you can see it. That's the kind of script I do know that made it its way around Hollywood for a bit. And... Because it was originally titled Scary Movie, right? That's what they shot it under, too. Yep. And which actually makes more sense. Like, what's your favorite scary movie? Like, that's kind of like the pitch. I like it. I actually like the first couple scary movie comedy films as well. I think they're hilarious. Oh, yeah. Um, like, I remember like seeing, part two is just golden. Yeah, no. I mean, the first couple are really, really funny. But I mean, because I even remember seeing Not Another Teen Movie. Oh, yeah. On my birthday, whatever year that came out. <laughs> But speaking of birthdays, this movie came out on my 14th birthday. Fuck. December 22nd, 1996. I went opening weekend with two older girls from junior high. So you're just in. We snuck in to a sold out opening night crowd. Um, I ought, you know, minor tangent. I sometimes think about the three schmucks whose seats we obviously stole because like we bought tickets for another movie. And then, cause it was at the Regal Lionville. I believe they had a seven screens or maybe it was nine. I think it was seven. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's demolished now in like a Wawa or something. But like, uh, at this place, it was one of those old school movie theaters that was set up like a T to where like, you yeah. walked in, you have the box office, then you have this massive uh, concession stand slash like video game kind of arcade and place for like lobby where you basically just go hang out and it's all, it's super garish and like neon everywhere, candy machines, blah, 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 Chuck blah. E. Cheese barfed everywhere. Yeah. yeah, exactly how you imagine, like what every movie theater in the, in the 90s in the suburbs looked like. It, like if you grew up in any area where there was like strip mall movie theaters just picture that and that's where you are right now so you go straight back past the concession stand and it tees you have the uh ticket taker the usher and on either side you know it it, you have on the right hand side like four or five screens left hand side like four or five screens now they would wisen up to this but back in the day when i was just like a kid they would mix all the movies up. Like, you know, you, you would have like a PG movie playing right. next to an R-rated movie and blah, 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 blah. It wouldn't be until like a couple of years later, frankly, until I was old, like I was already old enough to basically buy tickets at this point that they would start putting R-rated movies on one side and then PG-13 movies on the other side. So they could even look at you like, you don't even look old enough to be in this area. Yeah, like you're in the wrong wing. Like this is yeah. the topless wing of the movie theater. You're still in the kitty ball pit. Like, this, is where time, to, this is where time cops playing. Yeah. Mia, Mia Sarah's boobs are waiting. Yeah, take your ass back to Patch Adams, motherfucker. <laughs> Go watch Balto, you yeah, fucker. Exactly. 
There's Francis Ford Coppola's Jack. Eat shit. But like, at this point when I was 14, like you could buy whatever ticket that you wanted. And like, it was probably playing right next door to Scream. And Scream was supposed to be big enough that I think it was on two theaters at the time. I could be wrong. But we snuck in, took whoever seats these were like supposed to be. And this movie just like completely melted my entire brain. Like it was just like, oh my God, I've never seen anything quite like this. And like, kind of like you, I was starting to get into horror movies. Um, but I think it's worth discussing that this and Pulp Fiction, I think are two kind of uh, almost like, what do they call them? Gateway drugs yeah. for a lot of like 90s cinephiles that, you know, come of age during that period because all of a sudden you were like, who the fuck is Wes Craven? Oh, he made Nightmare on Elm Street. What else did he did? What are all these movies that they're referencing in this? Yep. What is Halloween? What is this? What is that? I had already seen Halloween, of course, but like it was the same with like Pulp Fiction to where you wanted to fall down every rabbit hole of every film, like kind of subgenre that he was referencing only with Scream. All the references were right there. He was just like Kevin Williamson's script was just presenting it to you being like, go enjoy it. We're skewering the things that you already kind of know, but and this is one of the things I mainly want to talk about because it's kind of how I watched and came up with a thesis for these films while watching them is that these movies also changed the way that we talk about horror movies in particular, because like, I believe in like the early nineties, like 92, you have people like academics, like Carol Clover who are writing books like men, women, and chainsaws that are all about the deconstructing like 70s and 80s horror movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and talking about them in terms of like the final girl, the rules of slasher movies, virginity. Uh, if you smoke pot, you basically get murdered. All the sinful stuff and like punishment for the sins. Like that was all academic stuff, but Scream took that and changed the vernacular from the academic to the mall crowd. And then all of a sudden we're watching it being like, oh, this is, a, what are the rules of scary movies? Like, what are your favorite ones? It's breaking it down for uh, a whole generation to like start thinking critically about these and then be able to talk to one another. Yeah, I, lo I love that idea. And I think that, because I read, I didn't read Men, Women, and Chainsaws fully until grad school. I read her first article, her body himself, which it all kind of stemmed out right. of, um, which I believe was based on her relationship with Robin Wood, the famous film historian and theorist. Right. Um, and it's funny because I reread the, just that chapter, that, that article for this podcast. And I just remember how much I fucking hate it. Um, I think that it's funny that, the final girl, all these things have become so like part of, like you said, part of our vernacular, not just in the horror crowd, but like you talk to like a normal person, like final girl, they've seen a couple horror films. Like I know what you're talking about. I mean, there's a whole church's album that's written up like in the vernacular of like slashers. I think there is a, a song on it called final girl and stuff, but like this stuff hadn't penetrated. No, our pop culture 
vernacular, let's say, uh, until Scream, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And to to have the also a character like Randy was, I think, really new. Um, where in, in the film you have like the the film nerd in the like kind of commenting on the film you're watching right now, which by the fifth one becomes a pretty fucking tired in my opinion. Um, and, and one of the things we talk about in the later films too, is like everybody is Randy, like everybody. Cause it's one of those things too, yeah, where particularly it, like two, it's, it kind of really suffers. From it, that. Yeah. Plus you once he's, he's gone, you yeah. know, like we've talked about it, kind of the film kind of loses its, its, its center a little bit when he's gone because he is the voice of like the true horror fan. And what's weird is that, that used to be something special too. Um, and I think horror fandom has changed considerably since partly because of screen, you know, that it, it did open, oh, yeah. it did open up the way that people engaged horror films and, 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 and not for the better. It, it, go, I want to get hundred percent for the better. I completely agree that one of the things you and I talked about and, and we can jump around here, but when we saw the slumber party massacre remake, the one from, I think South Africa that just came out this year. Yeah. Um, that was on sci-fi. Right? It was on sci-fi. Yeah. And I think did theatrical in a couple of countries, but I remember I watched it and I was like, eh. and then you watched it and you're like, can we just get a non fucking referential meta slasher? Just a straightforward. Yeah. Cause like what I really like about a film until that would almost feel more revolutionary these days of like a thing that doesn't bring all of the subtext to the surface because the slumber party massacre remake is more or less like, Remember this 80s horror movie with this driller killer and these girls, but it's all like it was made by women and it, it it's all about feminism and the As male the first wanting one to was penetrate too. them and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we have an idea. What if now we just tell you that's what the movie's about for 80 fucking minutes and it's the most annoying goddamn thing ever? But that's what the the new kind of generation of horror fan really wants is that they're like, yes, really engage with my intellect here. Let me like reaffirm my progressive values the entire time. And it's like, nah, dude, just make a fucking horror movie that really challenges me. Like these days, if I think that's part of what made, again, not to jump around too much, then we should probably circle back here pretty quickly before we lose ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But uh the the I think that's what made the French New Extremity stuff in the two thousands feel so fresh, like high, high tension. tension. Exactly. Yeah. Is that all of a sudden here's these French guys making movies that do have that subtext, and some of it's kind of problematic at times or a lot of times, but they just made the goriest, most brutal, politically minded horror films where you had to dig beneath the surface a little bit. But even if you didn't care about any of that, there was a girl taking a circular saw to another guy's face through a fucking windshield. And you're like, oh, like just screaming the entire time. But yeah, I think Scream, Scream in, in a lot of ways is responsible for how we engage with a lot of art in general now. Yeah, not just horror. In terms of like how it's all about deconstruction. It's all about finding a kind of uh, subtextual and even moral kind of uh, underpinning inside of it. And then having something to cling to. Because I remember before the new uh, movie was even in production officially, like shooting, there were all of these like articles that came out that were basically like, 
you know what has to happen for Scream 5 to be, like, thrilling? They gotta fucking kill Sid, you know? And then you had a slew of articles that were like, you can't kill Sid. She became a feminist icon for all of us, and she really helped me through my trauma the entire time. But, like, before Scream... We weren't talking about Final Girls. We weren't talking about trauma. We weren't talking about all these things, which is a lot of the stuff that Sydney would go through and that character would be a pioneer of. But that became the one-track way that we more or less discussed stuff, at least in the popular culture. I, I totally agree. And I remember us, I think, if not on the podcast, us just talking, but like the David Foster Wallace article about, about sentiment and our, and our generation's fear of sentiment. And I think like, this is definitely part of that, of anything with a a postmodern kind of meta narrative. If you have a problem, you're like, I don't think I like this. Then you're fucking stupid. Right. Because we weren't being, we weren't being real. This is like a meta narrative. And so it almost like finds a way to deny criticism of, of the, of the actual, you know, piece of art or the film or the book or what have you. And what I really like about the first screen is it really kind of toes the line between being postmodern and being a meta narrative, but also being a good slasher. Like it, it also is what it's talking about. You take away some of the meta stuff and straightforward has some great kills, has the great, it's still, it's still doing the movie. Yes. Like you're still getting your sugar, it's, it's the Wes Craven of it all, is yes. that Wes Craven shows up and is totally engaged in the material. And I think part of this is due to the fact that he just needed a hit. Because <laughs> you're, you're coming off of Shocker, you're coming off of uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, you're coming off of New Nightmare, which we have to talk about because this New Nightmare is essentially the prototype for what Scream would yes. become, and is still better than all of the Scream movies, by the way. But like... None of those movies were hits. Like Vampire in Brooklyn did okay. Shocker did okay. New Nightmare was a flat out bomb. Like we looked up its its international box office. Twenty? You, it didn't break twenty million <laughs> fucking dollars. So if there was any death knell for the slasher movie, it had to come from the guy who uh, more or less reinvented it the first time during the eighties. Because that's the coolest thing about Craven, right? Is that Craven was at the forefront of the 70s horror boom. Let's say, like, he's making Last House on the Left in, in 1972. And then he makes Hills Have Eyes in 77, 77 I believe. Yeah. He also makes Su- Summer of Fear with Linda Blair. But, like, his movies in the 70s were, like, the epitome of, of what felt dangerous. Yes. Like I remember like high tension, <laughs> like high tension, but I remember renting last house on the left for the first time and feeling like it was the first, and it was after scream. And it was where it was like, Oh God, I really got to dig into this Craven dude. Because I think at that point, the only thing I'd probably seen was, um, nightmare on Elm street and people under the stairs so, like, I wasn't, you know, totally hip to what Craven was doing. But then I remember going back and renting uh, Last House on the Left from West Coast Video. And it was the first time in my life where I was like, I don't think I should be watching this. And by me, I, I mean anyone should be watching this. Like, this feels like the, the work of, like, a depraved lunatic. And then, so horror evolves. And it, it Texas Chainsaw really takes the reins there and... and is more or less like the flagship of the 70s, for, for lack of a better term. It's like, it was all about the grit, the realism, and frankly, dealing with the 
uh, psychic trauma of Vietnam, Nixon, disillusionment with America. It's all in there, baby. So then you get to the 80s and you get stuff like post-Halloween slashers like Friday the 13th and uh, all the stuff that we really love, like basically all the knockoffs. And then that starts to even run out of gas during the first wave at the end of what, like 82? 82 is where it starts to die. Like 81 is fucking hot. Like yeah. it's on fire. And then there's like you one can't great throw a year. rock without hitting a slasher movie. There was I, I think it was like when I did like this like breakdown in grad school of like variety, I would look at like the top every week you look at like the top fifty and it was like ten out of the top fifty films in America were slashers for like yeah. a whole year. I mean it's we insane. had a, we had a movie that we talked about before. Uh, with Oberon Carpenter, which is the Dorn the Drip Blood, which was more or less like a bunch of UCLA students are like, hey, we can basically just shoot a slasher for our student thesis. And then we also have a movie that we can fucking sell to people. Like these were even the types of, of yep. that were making these movies. But now it's dying commercially. And then Craven emerges and, and inserts the surreal uh, element yep. with Nightmare on Elm Street. And then it just totally kicks off a whole cycle of its own. So then that dies out and really Freddy Krueger not being able to come back and break 20 million at the box office uh, all less than a year or no, about a year before Scream, right? Because it was 94. Yeah, 94, 94 was, was New Nightmare, yeah. And then uh, Jason's dead. Um, Jason went to hell but didn't make, he didn't make any money when he went there. And then... Freddy's um, dead too. Twice. <laughs> yep. Um, and then... Um, Michael Myers, 89 was part five and 95 was part six, which I don't think did well, which is interesting. It was also at Miramax and Dimension. Right. That they were kind of trying to like, hey, can we keep this going and like get some more money out of this fucking dead with that sweet cutie boy, Paul Rudd? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) he's adorable in it. Um, But the point here is that basically like slashers were dead. Yeah. And frankly, so was Wes Craven. And a lot of horror, general horror in the, in the movies was not doing well. And nobody really knew what to do. And that's where Kevin Williamson kind of comes in as like, I want to make this new horror movie for a new generation, but it's going to talk differently than any, uh, horror movie you've ever seen before. It's going to be smart. It's going to be a little quote unquote elevated before elevated horror was even a thing. But I think what's interesting about it is that he's crossing streams, right? Because he's making Dawson's Creek at the same time. So he more or less brings this entire legion of television actors and even an aesthetic with him and meets Wes Craven head on. And it just becomes one of those weird moments of cinematic alchemy to where like they they gave birth to an entirely new subgenre, which was more or less the modern metatextual slasher. Yeah, I mean, for me, lasted until I think Valentine is where I kind of saw it. Because you've got like the Scream movies, you've got the Urban Legend movies, you've got Valentine. I know you did last summer. I know. Here's my thing. I struggle with, like, I know what you did last summer definitely counts in terms of like, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Scream. It's not very meta. My That's my thing with it is that I don't think it quite fits the bill because A, it's an adaptation. Right. And then B... It's just kind of a straight YA horror novel. Like it just, it's not commenting on itself, but it does do. And Williamson wrote it. (laughs) Williamson did write it, but it also does the same thing of bringing in, here's all these fresh face stars. 
And especially with part two, where they go to the fucking island and like Jack Black's there and stuff. That's a rough and one. And Brandy and McKee Pfeiffer. But I mean, that was even a casting thing they would do because Maya would show up in Cursed, the Kevin Williamson, uh, Wes Craven werewolf movie that Dimension did that tried to recapture that scream magic. And well, we can get there in a minute. I'm excited to get there. <laughs> I want to. Lord. I want to get there. Because on one night we should say that like you came over to just basically hang out. I was finishing scream too. Then I looked at you and was like, you want to do new nightmare now? And you're like, yeah, sure. So we did new nightmare. And then we're like, well, let's keep this fucking train going. Do you want to do cursed? And was like, yeah. And then the buck stopped with cursed because our, our God, good time ended. <laughs> well, I would say we actually had one hell of, I had one hell of I a did. time watching that movie because I had never seen we watched, I don't think I'd seen it at all. I'd seen bits and pieces of it here and there and more or less knew it just in meme form almost, especially with the werewolf giving the finger. But like, I don't think I'd ever sat through it in just one viewing. Wow. That's a it's a train wreck. It's a disaster. <laughs> it is a movie where Jesse Eisenberg is bitten by a werewolf and then goes home and Googles, what if werewolf? And you're like... <laughs> Okay, I think there probably could have been a better cinematic way to represent that. And then turns into Bully Parker from uh, Spider-Man. I mean, full-on swoop over here, like, now he's cool and hot. Yeah, somebody (laughs) needs to write, like, one of those overpaid articles on the internet about all the different wigs that Jesse Eisenberg wears in that movie. Because, yeah, he goes full... He's straight up just doing Pete Wentz Parker in that. Like, it's (laughs) horrifying. But... You know, Scream 2 then comes out and is a massive hit, but it's a massive hit both because it, it does this fresh new thing, but it also introduces us to the the big screen versions of Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Rose McGowan, uh, Skeet Ulrich, which Skeet Ulrich, they, Matt- tried, to, they tried to make him a thing. Like he was going to be the next Johnny Depp. And you know that's what was on Craven's mind, even just looking at him like, I did this once before. Like, maybe this kid will work. He doesn't work. Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, yeah, is another huge one and arguably the best performance in the entire series. Mm -hmm. And then also Jamie Kennedy as the ultimate uh, horror nerd avatar, Randy, who you don't want to be Randy, but you kind of want to be friends with Randy. He's great. I mean, there's there's a proto Randy in Final Exam with Radish. I mean, he was yeah. this like so there have been, but he was this voice for the nerds before being a nerd was cool. I mean, it was sure. like, oh my god because like I watching this movie like I was he was like, the I, best version of comic book guy, right? Where you're like okay, like you're like okay, I think I'm pretty close to Randy and the whole thing of like not getting the girl and like loving movies and like he wh- gets better as as the. F- first and then second movie go on. It almost feels like Craven shot his performance in order because at first he shows up and I'm like, ooh, Jamie Kennedy, no bueno. And then by the end, I'm like, (laughs) all right, you know what? Randy's pretty cool. And then he dies in the second one halfway through and you're like, well, now the whole fucking series has lost gas. Yeah, I think wrapping this all up together, what you're you're saying, you know, bringing these kind of hot young stars in is, this is a great cast. I mean, like across the board, like they really... Near perfect. It's like, like I was watching even up to the fifth one and like Nev Campbell is great. Like she's a very good actress and like she balances being like the first movie. Like she's not in a meta movie. Like she's playing it all straight. Like she is this very like. They talk about in the latest issue of Fangoria. um, 
about the renaming of Scream from Scary Movie and how Nev Campbell was one of the ones who like had more or less like a breakdown over it because she said this was the movie I signed on to. I signed on to to make Scary Movie, not Scream. Like she believed in this shit like one hundred percent. She's I mean she really like again for a person who'd been known for people from Party of Five, you right. know like we she at that point a couple of years like then she that been sweet in a, baby Leto. Yes, was Leto on there? Party of Five. Right? Yeah. He was on My So-Called Life. No, he's Party of Five, too. He's Jared Catalano. Or is that My So-Called Life? My So-Called... My Crossing Streams? Yeah, so it's, it's Scott Wolf is on... Oh, my God, Scott Wolf. Scott Wolf and, uh, Matthew, Fo- and Matthew Fox. Oh, yeah. that's right. See, all of the 90s television is now just a scramble in my brain. It's not for me. I just spent way too much. Like, that was... These are formative years. I mean, I watched all this shit, and... It makes sense that I come from a place that has Scrapple as one of, one of its main breakfast items. <laughs> That's what my brain looks like at this point. <laughs> it's oats and pork and grease. Um, and buttholes. <laughs> but I thought, you know, you also use, I think, Courtney Cox's kind of energy as a star, right? Because I think Friends had just started at this point. Yeah. Friends like it's 94. Kind of at its peak when two's out. Like it's yes. really apexing at that point. But she's like great in the first one. I think David Arquette from the beginning is is really real inspired. Like he's just like he is balancing out like being cute and adorable, but also like he, in the first one, like he he might be a killer. Like for the, they're really playing him. There's a couple parts where he's one of the possible suspects. Well, but he's Craven, so lovable. Craven is really into these kind of idiosyncratic actors throughout the entirety of his career. Like uh, the, the couple from Twin Peaks coming in and, and doing uh, People Under the Stairs is one yeah. of the best examples. Like really offbeat type stuff. Uh, working with Bull Pullman in Serpent and the Rainbow. Um, even Mitch Pelegi, I, I think. was going to say Mitch Pelegi <laughs> is Horace Pinker and shocker. Like he likes a certain type of actor that's going to give you choices that aren't necessarily the ones that you would expect. Let's say back to Robert England. Right. I think casting this weirdo nerdy guy from the TV show V right. as your like, it's an inspired choice because like we can't think of, horror without thinking Robert England now. I mean, like he's, but he's so not when you watch his earlier performances, like to see that guy and be like, that's going to be the person who haunts children's dreams for generations of of red exploitation too. Yeah. For that, like it's stuff like a Toby Hoover's eaten alive, which is a real icky movie. It's what makes me feel gross. Yeah. I love it. I love the, the crocodile. Oh yeah. The whole thing is super gross. It's what I mean. It's, it's, Straight up, one hundred percent uncut cocaine. Toby Hooper era. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, you, you think about the rest of the cast too. Again, back to Matthew Lillard. I mean, watching this again, he's one of the parts where I'm every single time like, yes, yes, yes. Like he's so playing, he's playing the douchebags that I went to middle school and high school with. Like he really does channel. That loud mouth, like there were that guy existed in the '90s as oh, a yeah. cool kid at school who was like super skinny and lanky. I was super skinny, but not cool like this. Wore two big sweaters. Yep, and the whole the, his whole thing and like the kind of just uh, had those weird crisp down hair, like balls around their neck. I can't remember what they're called. Puka beads. <laughs> well, it's puka shells. Puka shells. I had an ex girlfriend. I, I said. <laughs> If I wore a puka shell, did you break up? And she's like, yes, absolutely. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yes, I would dump you 
right away. Like Puka Did shells. Did you end off. up wearing Puka shells? Where is she now? Uh, she doesn't. I don't know where she is now. But I joked. I was like, and I was like, I'm gonna do it. And she goes, Seriously, don't. Like, I won't see you the same way anymore. I'm like, okay, I guess. But That's I still, right. I love Puka shells. Did you ever own any Puka shells? No. Okay, me neither. What I think about I, Birkenstocks. I, I wore them. I never had Birkenstocks either. Never had Doc Martens. There's a lot of things I, I, I kind of missed the boat on. Yeah. Um, but, but he, I think Lillard is just really amazing in this. And like you said, you have Skeet Ulrich who. Jenkos. Did you own any Jenkos? I had one pair. My brother had. <laughs> I wanted them. They were really expensive. Like they really were like pricey. Yeah. They were pricey as fuck. My brother had one pair. But there was a kid named Mike New. Who didn't have puka shells? He had the metal ball bearings we talked about, which is what Stu has. Yeah. Then he had a um, a nine inch nails long shirt, um, and then he had the wide lead Jinkos that were as big as like it was almost like Morticia, like because they, they get became these wet strands, they get broken apart in the rain and shit because you're you're walking on them, and it was basically an eight foot like circumference to this like circle of denim when he would like slosh like yeah, through. It's weird how every kid like under 15 wanted to look like Kevin Smith at one point. Yep. It Even was, the cool kids. Like yeah. it wasn't just the nerdy kids. Like just, what a horrifying time for fashion. And that's, that's actually, it's funny. You, this kind of brings up something you mentioned earlier that I was just thinking about. So they showed scream at, Terror Tuesday for here in Austin, which is okay. Those, those you're listening, Alamo, once a week, um, we'll do basically like an old horror film and they'll do it usually on 35 millimeter if they have a print and they showed it down at the Ritz and I was like, oh shit, I haven't seen, sc- I actually had never seen it on the big screen. I was like, cool. So I was like in like the second row. It's the only thing I could get it was fine. And I was next to some really annoying, like early twenties kids who I could tell had never seen it. And they were treating the whole thing like a stupid horror movie. Like they were like kind of what you're getting at earlier of a new generation who wasn't maybe even alive or cognizant when these films came out, especially the first one or one to three, I would say, who are like, they're seeing it with, an, with basically like one extra degree of separation from the texts, but also like from the meta text. And it's almost like a thing I heard recently of a woman having to, she showed her kid back to the future. And she goes, it was so hard because my kid can't tell the difference between the fifties and the eighties. It all looks fucking weird and old to him. And I was like one big continuum at this point. Seriously. You're, you're talking like in his mind, it's like, I don't like that's all. It's old and strange, you know? And I felt similar about this is like, these kids are, it's a copy of a copy of a copy the way they're, they're interacting. Does that make sense? Well, it's sort of the way that uh, James Murphy from LCD Sound System used to talk about uh, pop music trends, and he would use the term borrowed nostalgia yeah. to where it's it's something from another generation that you knew was popular and made a huge imprint, but it wasn't from your generation, but you're still nostalgic for it, and you're there to more or less experience it almost secondhand. Which is interesting, I, I agree, and I love James Murphy too, is that you and I have talked about this, but like we're the same age, like we were born in the eighties. We did not grow up in the eighties. Like we were not aware creatures until the nineties. Like the fact that we're both talking about seeing scream and like this visceral reaction. The first time we see it, very deep memories about first time seeing it. It's like how my uh, aunt Mary Kay talks about going to see alien on opening night and being one of the people who screamed in the theater when the thing pops out and, you know, jumps onto John Hurt's face. Like, like she was the person in the theater yes. screaming, like, ah, like losing it. But we were there 
for Scream. Like for us, that is a, a, like an actual memory. Yeah, I mean, I would put Scream up there with the first time I saw The Matrix. Like having the yeah. big, like, oh my god, face like, off. Just fa- I mean, if you have form- another big one, formative, like formative movie, like kind of game changer movies, and a lot of the stuff that people are nostalgic for now. There's people about ten years beneath us, let's say, yeah, give or take. We'll go that are now nostalgic for the '90s. Like that's the big thing now. Even in fashions and stuff, you're seeing people flat like, butt sport, jeans, <laughs> flat butt jeans, the Rachel haircuts, all that shit is coming back. And you look at it and you're like, I lived through that time and it sucked then. Why do we got to do it now? Yep, it's it's very. I, I'm getting. I think it's very much uh, uh, a desire for an analog age too. I mean, we think about. You, you roll your eyes. I think, you know, even me as a, a viewer watching scream again of the thing of like, what do you do with the cell phone, Billy? A lot of kids have them. It's like, that's just, it's a joke to laugh at. It's like, Oh my right. God, a time when not every fucking kid had a cell phone. And the, the continuous thing of, I cloned a cell phone, which I literally don't think is possible. Right. <laughs> it's like we even in part four, like we cloned the cell phone. Like what a fucking cop out. Well, they do it in the TV series too, Yep. because there's it's a whole lame. like kind of subplot about a cloned phone. But to bring it back to the kind of something you were saying earlier with how the movie is a deconstruction, but it's also the movie too. Like it delivers on being a scream movie. I think that's the biggest triumph possibly of Wes Craven's entire career is because he finds a way again from the seventies to the eighties to the nineties to not only reinvent horror, but to reinvent himself. Yeah. And because what are the things that I love about Scream, particularly the Wes Craven helmed entries, is that all of the horror set pieces, particularly when like anytime Ghostface, the killer bursts into a scene and is chasing somebody, you'll notice the filmmaking takes a distinct left turn and becomes almost action. Like it, he yes. shoots the 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 stalking scenes, not like a Brian De Palma movie or a, a John Carpenter movie or a Friday the 13th movie. He shoots them with this very kinetic camera. There's no hiding. It's There's just no hiding. <laughs> Ghostface just appears. And then also he's real into uh, the impact, like the, the damage that Sydney or uh, Gail or any of them, like actual, like when they fight back, like Ghostface and all of them gets his ass whipped like numerous <laughs> times. And Craven is very much relishing in the violence of it and how like, ferocious and also entertaining screen violence can be like he gets it he and he relishes it he's saying like here it is here's the shit that you fucking signed up for and if i can trojan horse all this other stuff with kevin williamson's script then so be it and that's what the movie is now remembered for it works it's a two-hander almost in the the truest sense it does all the subtextual meta stuff and then it just is a horror movie that by the time you get to the end the whole billy and stew like reveal still fucking kicks ass even if you've seen it 20 times before because the whole tone of it changes and fucking Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard in the end are oh. so awesome. Like, they're just so fucking good. It's it's funny you say that because I think when I think of the first time I saw this film, I think of the last act. Like, that's sure. what I think of mostly. It's not the, albeit awesome opening scene with Drew Barrymore. It is that reveal and... You said the tonal shift of you're in this like this nightmare world now of like, okay, your boyfriend was the killer. Also, 
there are two killers, all these things that had not been done in slashers. He may have killed your mom. He may, yeah, these guys, you know, they might involve with your mother's death. They're all gonna, your friends. They're going to frame your dad. You yeah, know, you, all, can't, you can't find, you can't locate your father. Like, it's it's it, pretty crazy. It really, like, amps it up. And actually, the whole, even until that turn where you realize who it is, like, the whole final just set piece in that house is just gorgeous because one of the things that really angers me about a lot of modern some of these reboot slashers, like especially Halloween from 2018, I was like, this whole movie should end at a party. I was like, yeah, if they're trying to find Allison, like Allison should have gone to a party against her mom's and grandmother's wishes. And they had to go find her. That's your fucking story. Like it writes itself. It's like, it's such a great way that Williamson and Wes Craven also understand like the plotting, the mechanics, the plotting, of the horror movies and slasher movies in particular. This is, and you watch the movie, you're like, well, this is, of course, gonna be the final, like, this is the final location for all the deaths because usually with good slashers, it's in some kind of, it's in usually a house, a lot of the kind of like more a prom, suburban, a dance. yeah. Parents are usually absent, you know, um, camps are also where parents are absent colleges, right. all these places where teens are allowed to kind of go about their way. But again, it's taking it back to the, the academic writings of like people like Carol Clover that were like, where are these, the basically hot houses of sin? They in the suburbs, which is where scream takes place. It's your own fucking house in the same way that it was your own house in Halloween. And then it, that evolves into being like a campsite in the Friday the 13th movies, it's like you're saying, it's these places where you can be away from all authority and you can just indulge whatever wild, uh, lustful whim that you kind of have in your head. But like Williamson's taking that idea and he's making it text and he's making it uh, digestible for, you know, people who, who showed up to the Regal Lionville 7 in 1996 and just wanted their tub of popcorn, their, their giant you know, Diet Coke, have their girl on their arm, and then to just watch this slasher movie. Like, Joe Blow totally gets Scream, but so does Professor Joe Blow on the, you know, at the local university. Yeah, and it's it's funny because a lot of films after this have gone to the same texts and tried to not redo Scream, but play the similar stuff. I mean, like, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. But another one is... Um, Urban Bob- Legend does it to a... To- a certain degree just with like the actual kind of myths that we've held for like years and years. Well, it goes, it actually goes, it's like pre-film, right? Yeah. It's like the stories we've told. Um, and then you have, um, behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon, which Ooh. is, which is, I really like a lot. I also saw that in the theater. I watched it on DVD and it's funny because, um, my film professor, Dr. Jane green, when I was in college, who, taught my also my horror class and we're still like very close like super cool person first time I read her body himself was in um in that class her student was the guy up, uh, who made Leslie Vernon like she oh, wow. she introduced him to Carol Clover <laughs> and so and what's funny though is that he goes even more on the nose with like the phallic stuff like he talks about it in the film was like this is my penis like they really really get into it and I think it, it actually works on its own kind of, I think it stands on its own two legs too. Um, in a fun way of being the documentary that turns into the real horror film at the end, but obviously doesn't have the cultural impact of 
a scream. No, that's a pure like cult movie. Yeah. Because I believe that was at the time when like Anchor Bay was actually putting first run movies out in the theaters. Yeah. Because they put that out, and the other one they put out was that Stephen Menem movie, uh, Malevolence. Yeah, and then and the then his slasher. sequel, um, Bereavement. Bereavement. Yeah. There's a third I one I haven't. Seen. I have <laughs> the first two. There's actually a third one I believe oh. too, but I've never actually seen it. Or maybe he tried to make a third one. I'd have to look it up again. Uh, what is interesting though, to go back to the aesthetic stuff, is that you know Mark Irwin shoots this movie. You know who shot. Vampire in Brooklyn and The Fly for David Cronenberg. A lot of Cronenberg shit. A lot of Cronenberg stuff. RoboCop 2. And then a lot of like, uh, you know, really weird stuff in like the 80s, like The Blob for Chuck Russell. I love that movie. But then he also shot shit like American Pie 2. And where I'm going with this is that, again, it's this weird collision of a guy who worked in horror movies and, and very kind of gnarly transgressive horror movies with stuff like the Cronenberg stuff that he shot. But then he also went and he, he was shooting studio comedies. So he was able to bring this kind of uh, aesthetic together that married. Here's this guy who works in TV and is right now, you know, responsible for Dawson's Creek. And like, that's what, you know, Wilt Williamson does like that's his bread and butter, but he's going to marry it with Wes Craven's kind of gnarlier tendencies and it all just comes together because Scream, the, one of the other things that has aged uh, impeccably is the fact that, like, watching, it, especially the first three movies, uh, a trio of films that are shot on anamorphic 35 millimeter, and, like, the first two movies here are fucking great looking. Even the third one, which, you know, falls off in terms of overall quality, Dude, the L.A. stuff, like that opening oh, yeah. car chase with Cotton uh, Cotton Weary where he's like weaving in and out of traffic. And again, another great Wes Craven set piece because there's a dude who loves fucking vehicular mayhem. Well, similar too. to New Nightmare, the exactly. awesome scene. Yeah, yeah, but like he just finds a way to really bring this movie uh, visually to audiences in a way that they understand and can easily digest. It's interesting because I agree there, and a lot of the films that they reference in the screen film, especially the first couple, are like these micro budget films that were Real like ruddy looking. You know, even I mean, even the first Halloween is a three hundred thousand dollar film. The first um, Friday Thirteenth was under a million. I mean, like, but I mean, the first Halloween looks great. Well, it looks great, but I, that's but I, the exception to the rule. But, and I'm not talking <laughs> in terms of look, but I mean, just in terms of what they were able to put on screen. Oh, sure. Like yeah, in terms yeah. of horror, like even the first scream is like a blockbuster movie. Like what's what I like about it is it almost has, um, like 20 million. I want to say is the budget here at least, but it's, it's interesting. I, I put it in the same boat as like Raiders of the Lost Ark where it's like, imagine, uh, imagine these films that you liked as a kid but with a budget and with like some polish to them, you know, because like Razor Lost Ark is doing like a lot of just these serial stuff with a big Hollywood budget with great special effects. This, I feel for the majority of slasher films are these lower budget, not great. And like this brings this like sense of gravitas to, to it. This was and, 14, by the way. Okay. So still they, a pretty modestly budgeted movie, even for 1996, but still, I mean, it, put, it looks great. Like you said, and, and the, and you get to two, and they really upped the game in terms yeah. of like kills. And with that, should we go to two? Yeah, we should just jump right into to Scream 2 because like it, I think it takes, if we're sticking with the idea of like 
Scream as film criticism. You have the first one that makes it digestible and brings uh, the academic to the mall crowds where Scream 2 logically then goes to a college campus and moves its thesis to a, a place of higher learning and then basically provides you with this entire new line of thinking on sequels, which isn't as revolutionary as Scream. Like we kind of already knew, especially post Terminator 2 in the 90s, like sequels were all about bigger, meatier, more violent, more explosive, more stars, longer, and it just gives you more of everything. But again, Scream 2 does that right from the opening set piece with fucking Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith, which I don't think it's better. I mean, the the opening sequence in the first Scream is still one of the all-timer yeah. set pieces like in all of cinematic history. But Scream 2, that stab premiere is fucking awesome. Yep, it's... And it, and it doubles down on the idea of, again, the, the, the psycho idea of you, these are your main stars and you kill them off immediately. Cause like Jada right. Pink and Omar Epps were already both like pretty well known and they'd been doing some bigger movies and black. Um, <laughs> I mean, that does something and, that, that there's, I don't think there's any black characters in the screen movie. Um, not any main the characters. The original one, like this almost kind of recognizes and is, feels like it's doubling back a little bit and being like, well, a lot of black people watch horror movies. They're a huge part of that uh, audience for these films. It would be weird if we didn't have any fucking black people in them, right? Well, and they want to play on the whole joke, too, of like black people will die first the, in the horror black films. And so they're adding first. in. And I, I will agree with you. I think that like one kind of breaking through the gate and being like the first to do it in that way is like really game changing. And so nothing it can do in the sequel, they can do in the sequels. is going to equal that initial shock of like, Oh wow, this is what you're doing. Yeah. Cause the movie was sold on Drew Barrymore being in it. Like they did the true Janet Lee psycho yeah. mm-hmm. thing with it to where when she died in the very beginning, it was legitimately shocking. You're like, what the fuck is going on with this movie? And she was had, she'd been having a big comeback in Hollywood. Cause I right. that was like right after some of her drug issues. Right. Um, and so she was like on her way back. Um, I also had the biggest crush ever on Drew Barrymore oh, yeah. in that movie. Like, that platinum hair and that sweater she's wearing. You know me and Bob hair, the yeah. Bob haircut. It's just like my thing. So every time I rewatch it, I go mm. a little uncomfortably, frankly. Yeah. Um, but you, you get to two and it's, it's, I think two is interesting because um, we've talked about this and um, I talked to another friend who's a huge, a huge fan of the series. And we were kind of this week. I was like, Hey, what's your, what's your order in terms of like your favorites? And he's like number two and then number one. Um, I also madness, but two's also my favorite. That's, that's deranged. That's fucking deranged. No. And what's funny though, is that I would never say that two's the better movie. What are you talking about? Go on. No, (laughs) two. I would never say two is the better movie. I get it. Um, I, I just love campus slashers. I love the setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I just, I love, I love the setting. Um, I love, just the bigger, I think the set pieces in general are better. The kills are better in two. Um, the soundproof booth is really great. It's awesome. Um, I think that like Dewey, like they expand his character more and like make him even more interesting. I think Gail too, like their history. Um, I, again, I, I, I like the setting I, and again, I'll, I'll talk to, I'll talk to my experience seeing the second one. I saw this in the theater and it was, 
I wanted to go. Again, I'm still too young to go. I don't, I'm not 17. My friend, oh, you didn't see two in the theater. I did either. see it. I did okay. see it. But um, we were supposed to go with a youth group, and then my pastor found out because our youth group leader was going to take us because he didn't give a shit. And my pastor's like, "You can't take these guys to see Scream 2. And as Jesus at, would not approve. And at that age, I was like, "This is bullshit." My mom's like, come, <laughs> and my mom's like, "Come on, like Martin." She was like, "Be reasonable." Hail Satan! Yeah, Hail I was like, "I was like, this is fucking." Bull-. And I'm listening to the craft like on CD in my in my bed, like being really being the emo Martin and. Um, but I remember it was Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff Jones. Yeah. And he, he actually went to my church and it wasn't going to happen. And he called me, goes, got some good news. My sisters can take us. Cause they were like 18 and 17. So they both took us very kindly to see scream Two, And that blew my fucking mind in the theater. Cause again, I got to have that experience you had in the theater of like, also feeling like a little bit older than I was too. I think cause you're, you're hanging out with like, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, I'm like 18 and I'm like hanging with the cool kids. Like this is what it's like. And it's a Friday night and I'm seeing scream too. It was just this like fucking event. I have the biggest boner ever right now. I mean, seriously. Um, but no, I, I, again, I will not say scream two is the better film, but I watch scream two rewatch much more often than I watch one. Nah, you can break up with me now. Nah, like it's we can just, end, we can end the podcast now. I think now. Scream Two is great for an hour, and then Randy dies, and then I think it completely falls apart. Frankly, like I don't like the killer reveal. I think it's kind of stupid. I don't like Oliphant's Bond monologuing at the end. Also, like I don't like the whole like he's the the hip Tarantino kind of film student. That's. Eh. Like him and Randy dueling back and forth is is mildly amusing, but it also has the most ridiculous uh, film class scene of all time where they oh actually my discuss God. sequels, where you just sit there and you go, this isn't how college works. I That's was, not college. I, I was re-watching this with my old roommate, Danica, like years ago, and we were watching it, and she just starts fucking laughing her ass off. It's bonkers. Because we were in grad school together for film. Like, and who it's, are these ruffians who just commandeered this classroom? And they think... And like, this is what like the general public thinks we do as film majors Yeah, is like, we sit there and we're like, we just What's jack your? off and talk about Terminator too. Yeah. It's like, and then there's like, this is a, you know, and I, it's like, no, it's like being in a literature class and you get into shit, you talk about theory, but it's like, no, let's spend 30 minutes talking about our sequels better after someone fucking got murdered. Now to, to be fair, I did have a class in college called the auteur director. I've told you about this off yeah. mic. That was all about Peter Weir's movies, and I almost fought a kid in my class when he tried to tell me that Fearless was a bad movie. He goes, no, there's just nothing to it. And I was like, I'm going to be nothing to your fucking face when I'm done with it. You should shove some strawberries in his face and kill him. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, it's, um, I love that movie. I love Peter Weir. but It's tremendous. It's, um, it's funny because there's something in that scene, though, too, that, really you start to see the things that annoy me about Kevin Williamson bleed through. And it's like we were talking about earlier where when you don't say so you have, okay, for instance, you have, um, I uh, agree with you on this one. Sarah Michelle Geller's there and she's like, that is so moral majority. And everyone's talking like a coked up Sorkin teen who yeah. like knows everything about everything. Well, and here's the thing is that part of that does feel again, like Williamson using the text to comment only this time on his own text. Because mm. I think casting Sarah Michelle Geller in particular is him like being like, this is what we're doing. 
Like, you guys saw the first one, right? Like, this is more of that, and it's bigger, because now we have fucking Buffy. You know, because they had all of the She WB. had just started Buffy. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, they had all of these, these actors in it that people just knew from, particularly WB and Fox shows, but it was like, you know, it, he's using... Uh, the the actual core characters of the movie to be like, okay, now Scream is part of this canon, right? So what do we say about our own movie? Which I think is kind of yeah. more interesting. Also, Sarah Michelle Gellar has the best, one of my favorite death scenes in the whole series where he hurls her off the fucking roof. That's my favorite sequence in the film because so I, good. I love, um, again, with campus slashers, I love sorority houses like Black Christmas like as settings. They're just so aesthetically awesome. Yeah, because they're like these gothic buildings on a college campus. Like They have a sense of history to them. It's like a lot of times, too, I like when they, like another set piece I like is... Um, in the uh, the AV building with the, with the sound the soundproof thing, right? But like the, you know the giant um, auditorium like classroom, like having like the camera stuff. It's just like I remember those classrooms like because I went when I went around to Dennis. It was a very old campus. A lot of those older buildings, like you had the seventies uh, Elon in North Carolina. Like it, yes. it felt very that Southern kind of gothic. Yeah, and they sh- so the other Southern film they shot this at Agnes Scott. In, okay. in Atlanta, right near where I lived for years. And so it's a very austere, like old, you know, kind of beautiful, um, almost like Duke kind of vibe, you know, with those older kind of and trappings. Which is kind of significant because two does feel like it takes place in a different part of the country than one. Because it's I did, supposed to. I did look. Well, yeah, I that's where I'm going with Sorry. this is that I actually looked up. We're wrong. They shot all of Scream in California. Oh, like, that was okay. all shot there okay. on location. Um, the newest one is North Carolina, though. I the believe. newest one is North Carolina, but the new one feels like we're out of Woodsboro now. Like we're doing something. These kids are going out into the world. They're doing their thing. And really, you can almost track it in these weird stages of life, like all five movies kind of go, is that one, you have them as kids in, co- in in high school. Two is college. Three is they're out in the world, more or less like trying to make their way, but also like coping with the horrible trauma of their past. Four is now they're kind of the old heads in the club and like this new generation's coming up with the cell phones and shit and the the influencers and whatever. And five is just like, like we literally meet Nev Campbell pushing a fucking stroller. But it's like an hour into the movie. (laughs) Yeah, like they do like show you where these characters are like in different points of their life, which I think is also very good and clever. Also one of the reasons why it's been an inter- an enduring kind of franchise for a lot of people is that like, they're like, Oh yeah. Like it makes sense that Sid would go from like, sl- you know, slasher survivor to strong woman in college to literal trauma counselor in three, four. She's more or less coming. Well, she's trying to recreate the narrative and like right. be, be the self-help. Yeah, know, like she, she's trying to be the, the the change that she wants to see in the world, more or less. But then by five, she's literally just a mom who's pushing a stroller. And then they're like, do you have a gun? She goes, I'm Sydney fucking Prescott. Of course I have a gun. And you're like, oh, that's right. You know, she she might be a mom now, but she's still packing heat. It's like, yeah, she's worked it out. But yeah, it's... Um, if Ghostface comes, he might take nine in the chest. <laughs> But it, but I, I will I will agree with you about your point about it losing steam, but also some organization um, once Randy dies because like like I Ran- think the meta thread 
is softer in this. Like, even oh, though it's yeah. beefier, it's just not as, like, pronounced and uh, impactful, let's say. Like, it's there, and it's trying to do the, we're commenting on sequels thing, but it's just, it doesn't penetrate the same way that, like, the ad, the, the the new way of looking at horror movies that came out of one did. Yeah, well, it's also came out, like you said, they, when they were shooting this, I think when Scream 1 came out, they had to have been for it to come out so quickly. It came out less than a year after. Yeah, so they had to go on like either into production immediately or they were like had some good ideas after some early screenings of like, okay, let's get started on two like yesterday. It does definitely feel a little bit at moments like a sophomore slump of like, all right, do that again. You know, when I'm not sure Kevin Williamson had the... the, It's too fucking long. It's it's Oh, it's too long. Um, But I, I like the... I like the expansion of the world. I would say the majority of the new characters kind of suck. Um, like I like Jerry O'Connell a lot, but it's like, all right, he's so fucking milk toast, which I know is part of the narrative. Timothy Oliphant, not that great. Debbie Salt kind of doing a, it's the reverse Mrs. Voorhees thing. They say, or it's like, imagine her show, imagine Mrs. Voorhees showing up part two. Like you killed my, my son. You know, it's weird for a guy who's so handsome. Liv Schreiber looks like he's made out of fucking Play-Doh in this movie. Like his whole <laughs> face is just scrunched in together. He, I think he's a guy though, who got really good looking older. He got yes. That's like, true. cause you see him like in like Wolverine X-Men origins with like his stubble. That's a good looking fucking guy. Like when he kind of grew into his face, yeah. I mean, he fucking was married to Naomi Watts. I mean, like... Good for him. It's a good the voice looking... of NFL films. Oh, you're right. He's got a beautiful voice. It's just like... And but... he doesn't quite have it in... Like, it's almost like watching Liv Schreiber go through puberty. Because in the first two, he's like... I, I, I think recently... He's very neurotic, too. <laughs> yeah. He, he almost seems like a Seinfeld character. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Speaking of Seinfeld characters, let's go to three because fucking David Putty is the best part of three for me in a sea of shit, really. But like, did you see Scream 3 in the theaters? I did. I saw this and I was in high school at this point and old enough to see it. Yeah, because this is 2000. 2000. So I was 17. Yeah, I'm 17, 18. So like, what would you, fr- you think? I mean, seeing it then and seeing it now, I felt the same way. I mean, I was like, man... It's so such a departure from the world of one and two. Again, like one and two is like the suburb slasher, the campus slasher. And then you're like all of a sudden this like Hollywood ripper kind of thing. It reminded me of um, what's the one that Joe Dante did with Alan Arkush? Um, Hollywood Boulevard with the with the slasher. Oh, OK, like that kind of feel of like there's a killer on the on the studio lot kind of thing. Well, apparently Craven was real reluctant to do it again, but he's the one who insisted they shoot in LA. Like it was one of his stipulations to come back. Well, it feels like new nightmare. I mean, it's, it's more about actors and there are, there are a few fun things in this, in this movie. And one of them, well, the main thing is Parker Posey doing her version of Gail Weathers. And like when they're teamed up together and like, kind of doing this like buddy cop kind of solving the mystery thing. Like the movie kind of flies in those moments. Cause they have great like chemistry. It's kind of like the hard copy version of the Hardy girls. Yes. And it's like, I would actually watch like a, a movie about this kind of setup of an actress sure. playing, you know, like that, that's a good, that's a good pitch. 
I think well, that's kind of the setup of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yes, very much. That it's like we're gonna pair you with this private detective so you can kind of see what it's like to be a cop. And he's like, it's so it becomes Robert Downey and you know Gay Perry. That's a very good comparison. Um, but you can definitely feel the lack of Kevin Williamson, even for the things that annoy me about him. Like he's he's sorely missing in this film. Um, Aaron Kruger is just not the screenwriter that Williamson is and never has been. He's written some decent movies that I don't hate, but like this is Skeleton not. Key's pretty good. I like Skeleton Key. I like the first ring. Um, cause he wrote that. Oh, I forgot you wrote that. Yeah. Um, but then he did a lot of the transformers movies. Um, Hey, Aaron Kruger got to eat. Oh, and he's fucking doing fine. And I watching this again, it, if I, if honestly we weren't doing this podcast, I just would have turned it off. I would have been like, you know what? I've seen this before. I don't need to waste my time. Like I, I dislike this film pretty, pretty much across the board. I liked it more this time than I ever have. I remember seeing it in the theaters and flat out hating it, thinking it's one of the, just a total piece of shit. And I mean it. So here's the thing. Now I like it a little more, but I think it commits the cardinal sin of more or less dropping the film criticism thread entirely. Like where one is about slashers and horror movies and two is about sequels. This isn't about genre like movies at all. It's not about how they're made or whatever. It's about Hollywood and bad men in Hollywood. That's what it's about. Particularly with the big reveal at the end with Sydney's mom and the producers and casting couch type stuff and like who the killer turns out to be. It's just like I get it. And it, it is obviously in hindsight now pretty ironic coming from Harvey Weinstein. Yes. But at the same time, like that was never what Scream was about to me. Now, there are some clever things in it that I, I do like the continued commentary on like infamy versus fame Mm. let's say to where like cotton now has gone from like guy more or less on death row because sydney wrongfully fingered him for the murder of her mother she fingered him yeah his butt (laughs) and then two (laughs) they sorry (laughs) two he's he's out because now he's he's been exonerated after billy and Stu are dead and blah 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 he more or less by the end becomes kind of like a hero. Like even that there's that final shot where Sydney's like, talk why don't him. you talk to him? And now it's like in three, I like the idea that Cotton's now this huge, almost like Phil Donahue Jerry type. Springer. Yeah. yeah. He reminded me of Donahue more than anything. Mm. Or, or Geraldo Rivera. Yeah. Somebody who's there to basically talk about the issues and really stoke like outrage and things like that. And like, that makes sense. That feels like the natural progression of like, here's a guy that's one that was once infamous. Now he's just basically an infamous talk show host. Yeah. That's pretty clever. But at the same time, who cares? Like none of it really like ties into scream itself. Uh, Arquette is different playing character. a totally different dude is Dewey. And here's the other thing. I, I do think that we get into some bad repetition with the Gail Weathers and, and Dewey stuff, their romance, because like one, it's this whole meet cute thing and you can really feel the electricity between uh, Arquette and Courtney Cox Two, they're doing the whole logical kind of next thing is that like Gail gets real big and exploits it by writing the book on the Woodsboro murders and everything. 
that stab is based off of. And then Dewey, you know, more or less breaks up with Dewey. They see each other again during the college, sla- the college slashers. That's like the most like Dawson's creakiest thing like in Scream 2 is because it's like the the will they or won't, won't they of like uh, Gale and Dewey's relationship. But then three, like we're just repeating ourselves again to where it's like, oh no, we loved each other once. But you suck now, Gail. Part five does yeah. it too. Uh, mm. Oh, we're gonna hold off until our part five discussion. I'm just saying there's there's a no. I think you're wrong, and we'll get to why you're wrong, and we'll have to sit there and just be wrong for the rest of the time that we're recording. Cool, cool. And our lives, <laughs> frankly, until you're dead. But like three repeats itself again because it's like, what did they break up about after like two? Or are they because they're married in four and she and they basically live in Woodsboro and he's the sheriff and she's trying to write her new kind of stuck and is going through some writer's block and he's being a good husband and helping her. But like three, it like Dewey seems like a fucking like alien. Like he's almost like the T-800 version of Dewey. I just don't understand it. Well, it's weird because he came out to do a consulting for the movie and then becomes He's like caught up in Hollywood because Parker Posey thinks he's cute and she he like makes her feel safe and all this bullshit. But he's he's really unlikable out of all these films. Like he's likable in every single one. He's one of the better parts of all five, except for in part three. Like Do you he, remember that in I believe it's scary movie, doesn't the Dewey stand in fuck the vacuum cleaner? Like in in Scream it, Three, he feels it, more it, like the guy who fucked the vacuum cleaner than Deputy he does Doofus Dewey. or whatever. It's his something name is. like that. But I distinctly remember him putting his penis in a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so like in Three, he's closer to that guy than he is actual Dewey. Well, and something you we were texting about when I was watching this, or I think you just watched it, was just like this might be the most dated of all the films because you have like Jane Silent Bob. Like Jenny McCarthy, it, it it's so like. Oh, that's right! I forgot about Jenny McCarthy. It's like a DreamWorks animated film where every joke is like for right now. Like, there's no universality. It's like, no, this is what people like right now. Like, it's why watching Community is hard now because so many of the pop culture references were like in the moment. Yep. Or even watching any sitcom, really. But yeah. This one's really fucking dated. Particularly when Jay and Silent Bob mm. show up, I audibly groaned in my living room. I was like, no, thank you. Fuck this. Yeah, because he says, oh, it's fucking Connie Chung. Say hi to Maury. Like, which isn't a horrible joke, but it would be funny if it were in like a Kevin Smith movie. But it's just... Nah. Um, it feels like a lot of that. I also just... It's something I start to see in three that I think carries into four and, and elements of five is... Just being quote unquote meta does not absolve you from making a bad movie. Um, like there's elements of like, no, this is a shitty cash grab sequel and you don't know what you're doing, but you can write it and say it's meta with a capital M and be like, oh no, but we're doing a trilogy thing. It's like, no, but it it's still stupid oh. that, that she has a long lost brother. Okay, and here here we go. We're gonna get in this too. The whole like Randy videotape scene. Oh my god, dude! Isn't it crazy how uh, Heather uh, Matazaro just shows up as Randy's sister, who we've never fucking met in two movies? She's like, oh yeah, by the way, Randy recorded this fucking videotape. I flew all the way out here. I flew all the way out to show it to you, and it's just Randy talking about the rules of trilogies. She's like 
the the butler from Spider-Man 3, but for Scream 3. She's also the video of M, Inspector. Yeah. At the beginning, they put it on. She goes, she goes I may not make it. There's, there's one other bad guy out there you do want to think about. Not the one we're fighting right now. It's like, wait, what? This is <laughs> stupid, This sir. is really dumb. And she leaves. She's like, they're like, good to see you. Not like, hey, you want to stay around for the rest of the movie? Like it would that actually wouldn't have been bad to like that works in movies all the time like write the sister or the brother in like make them part of the cast sure make her the new Randy whatever well, especially coming from a dude obviously Williamson didn't write this one but from a series let's say that's rooted in TV soap opera more or less having a long lost brother just show up sure or whatever. or a twin or a whatever twin a sister or whatever so I do have a question for you though logistically especially as the series goes on. So we have Stab in two. That's directed by Robert Rodriguez, mind you. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a big get for that, that first entry into the franchise. Two is directed by some rando motherfucker who's like, that. this is his first like big movie. So like with the reveal that he's the killer, and like they shut down production on Stab 2. Right. But... By Scream 4, there's like eight stabs, I want to say. There's a lot, there's, let's say. There's there's seven. Who um, who finished Stab 2? Did Joe Chappelle finish <laughs> Stab 2? Like, uh, I'm trying to figure out, like, how did this movie end? Like, who? obviously it did get finished because it was a Weinstein production. You know Harvey damn well probably went in and directed it himself if he had to put something out. But I did one. I got really, really high one night, and I think it was while I was watching four. And they went into because they have the whole intro in the beginning of four, which I guess this can just be a good transition into that movie. Is they have that whole meta uh, movie within a movie within a movie within a movie within yeah. a movie of everybody's watching it. You even end on like who are the two women watching it it's um what's your name from veronica mars well you yeah you have kristen bell and anna paquin and and there's one after that there's one after that like it just keeps going but like i think it's implied or flat out stated that there's eight of them i just didn't figure out who finished two so i think it's three because three is what they're shooting in the third one is three it's three they've already done one and two at that point okay yeah but but i completely go along with your idea though like so it's an Ally Smithy production, an Alan Smithy production <laughs> by the end, right? It's a Hellraiser bloodline. And, you know, um, there's, and, you know, it's funny, like watching these films all back to back also is, and this is not to be that guy, but one of my issues with this series that continues is in any other, in any other slasher film, it's not meta, right? Sure the killer is not trying to save the final girl for last. Right. So like if Lori got in the wrong, was in the wrong place, the wrong time with Michael Myers and Halloween one, she would have been killed. Like that's the narrative, right? Is that like, she's the last who goes over there. Um, Alice too, just happens to be the best one alive in Friday the 13th. You know, um, Nancy's the one who's from the beginning figuring this out. But what this one is like, this killer is trying to kill Sydney from like early in the first movie. Like she's the first attack after Casey Becker, but it's like, so is this long plan of like, no, we want her to beat us. Like, cause they're really trying to kill her and, right. and hit her, but it's like, Oh no, but we need her to live. Like, is, do you know what I mean? It's one of those things. It's like, how meta is this narrative? Are they really planning this all out that they want to keep torturing her and then have her show up at the end and kill her? to be there for the whole reveal versus like, I mean, like if they could have killed Sydney, 
in that first that first scene in Scream, would they have? Probably do, not. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. one of those things. I know it's like being like, what? Why don't they do this? But it's still like after the fifth one, you're like, dude, just fucking kill her. Yeah. Like she's right there. Just do it. Well, and like I James think, Bond shit. You but know? again, I think it's one of those th- one of those uh, generational things where Sid became like. The Laurie Strode for, yeah. for a legion of '90s girls, you know, and also like because of more or less the the uh, feminist trappings of the Scream's uh, series itself, and the idea of the final girl, and even with Scream Three, with Sid's a straight up trauma counselor. Like this predates the whole uh, kind of elevated horror. It's all about trauma. Boom, that would come with like Hereditary and all that shit later. Like, that's what three is about with Sydney. Like, Sydney is basically uh, Laurie Strode from H2O or Laurie Strode even from the, the latest, yeah. like, David Gordon Green one. Only she's, you know, she's cut off from society. She's only talking to people through a headset. She's only talking to other victims to help them through this so that, again, she can try and do something good with her life or with her experience. I think that's why you don't kill off Sid. Is because Williamson recognized like that she was this source of like kind of strength and inspiration for so many women, and like he had minted an icon with Nev Campbell. Oh know? no, I totally get that. I'm just thinking more of a narrative perspective. Oh sure, one hundred percent. But I mean, that's a John Ford. Why don't they just shoot the horses? Question. Right. You know it. it, it, it yeah. There and, would be no fucking movie. Yeah, I'm not trying to be that guy, but it's one of those things where it's like after the fifth time of like, no, we want you to survive the whole time, but we'll attack you. It's like, all right, like figure out a new game here. So four continues my uh, frustration with three in one simple fact that it's not, hell, it's even less of a work of criticism than three because at least three is about Hollywood. It's about the, the, the mechanizations of movies. To your point, it is closer to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is basically like Wes Craven's The Player, just set inside of this very um, meta, dreamlike world that he's created for like Heather Langenkamp and John Saxon and stuff. And so he can really work out a lot of his issues and his ideas on screen. But like, four is all about like, kids these days influencer and their fucking cell phones and their Instagram and their, 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 their Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And this is how they get famous. Like it's for a series that's as surface level as it gets with a lot of the stuff. This is the worst offender of it. I hate this movie. And so many people, so many scream fans try to insist that four is like the up in the upper S like echelon of the series it sucks watching it this time was definitely a dip for me so like i saw it in the theater and i liked it because i hate i hated three then and i hate it now and so for me it's like okay like this is closer to at least you're back in woodsboro there's like the elements are there too and and the characters are more themselves like dewey's more himself there's there's things that are kind of put more into place do you find it weird that sid just randomly has a cousin now and then oh yeah like it, it's again like you you forgive it because it is coming from a dude, particularly a soap this one, because Williamson returns and he's already had like a couple soap operas now under his belt, uh, teen soap operas, soap operas at that, and it's like so you get it. It's just another weird storytelling device from from that world that he operates in. But like, I, they never 
like you never talked about your cousin. Like your cousin lives down the the block from you, I guess. It's the same way with with like Randy's sister showing up. You're like, yeah, sure, I get. You, I, in Woodsboro is a small town, so maybe nobody moved away. But I feel like you would have at least been like, oh yeah, my aunt lives down the block. You know? Yeah, it's um, it's really hard to watch now because well, because they also present Sid as being like alone in Woodsboro. Like her dad's always gone. Like that's the the one thing that I found like baffling about is that like her dad's always gone. Her mom's obviously dead. But and like you know early on in the original scream, like there's that whole sequence where she's just sitting alone after the first couple waiting for happened. Tatum. Yeah, waiting for her to come by, and it like I guess your aunt wasn't home at this point, or your cousin wasn't around. anyway. Yeah, it's it, but it's it's a thing that like. One of the things you brought up with this film that I think really sticks is that it doesn't create a good new generation of of victims and of, of main characters. They suck. They, they feel like old people's interpretations of kids. And you had mentioned that. It reminds me of reading Stephen King's Under the Dome. There's like a whole thing with a teen kid who's like, yo, give me rock, bro. It's like, what the fuck? Like, it feels like an old, old man. It's that Steve Buscemi meme where he yeah, has fellow this, kids. Yeah, hello, <laughs> fellow kids. Like, that's all of Scream 4. It's very much. I think the one character it, that um, Hayden Panettiere, I like in this movie. I think her, like, like, she's a good actress, and I think she actually commands some some like kind of attention in this movie. I also, like we talked earlier, I like Emma Roberts and her performance. Like she's good in this, but it's like Rory Culkin is lame. His like very ugly. He's too. really ugly. And the whole idea, like he has a chance to head in Panettiere. Who's like a, a, a 12 yeah, he or looks a 14 like thing. <laughs> he looks like Ari Lehman, the guy who played the first Jason who hangs out at <laughs> fucking conventions. And it's just like, I play Jason, you know, like that's what he looks like. He looks like a guy who should be selling acid outside of a Seven Eleven. Yes. I mean, and he's, he's unfortunate. He's his buddy in the AV, or I guess it's called cinema club in this is worse. The dude who fucking wears that strange space headset to where he's live streaming his whole life. That's the most old manish like gag. That dude feels like he's beamed in from another fucking dimension. I'm like, I've never met a person like this. This is not how people act. It's, it's yeah, it's very one of those things where it's like, well, pretty soon we're all be live streaming everything. It's like, no, I'm no, good. Yeah, we're not. Like, and I get it. We all like t- Twitter and Facebook and shit and to update, but like, this kid's literally wearing a camera on his head. Yeah, and I think also the set pieces in general just aren't that strong in this one. Even for Craven, they feel a little bit like it's probably it goes to a script level. Just like the setup, like I like the final fight in the hospital is kind of fun, where she fucking zaps her head is like kind of a cool sure uh, the us you know when they beat her down. But it's this another, movie beat me down. Well, you know what's funny too this this is, I think is the ultimate offender of everyone being an expert now because even the cops are in the car going like. I'll be right back. So I'm not supposed to say that. Hey, well, who knows? Like maybe I'll be dead when you come back. It's like, good fucking God. Now here's the thing about that is I think that that is another bit of knowing kind of self commentary and saying that like 
we're now in the series that basically changed the way that we talked about is like every, like everybody in scream four has seen scream. That's why the stab movies exist in this. I do think that the stab movies are pretty clever in saying like presenting you with a culture that essentially is impacted in the same seismic fashion by like a series of slasher movies that our actual culture is with the scream films. Like that part I get. And I think it's one of the few clever things in scream four, like the whole Adam Brody thing where he's he's one of the deputies and it's who's the other one Anthony Anderson Anthony Anderson yeah which is a real weird pairing but like yeah them being like oh, I'm not supposed to sell be right back that okay it, I hear what you're saying I agree I don't like it I just it, it it's tiresome oh, it's I'm just not, look yeah. <laughs> I am in no way defending Scream 4 here's the other thing Scream 4 is the like one of the ultimate basic bitch horror movies of all time and it's one of the ones that exemplifies what's wrong with a lot of modern horror fandom is the if you look at the people who embrace scream 4 it's all the people who scream 4 is making fun of it's all influencers who shop at fucking target or write for some big horror website and think because they have like a podcast that we should give a shit about anything they have to say which I know is ironic coming from a, a white guy on a podcast. <laughs> but it's one of those things where, like, the people who embrace this movie are actually the ones that it's sort of skewering to a certain degree. And it doesn't feel like they're swift enough to kind of get on board with that or at least get hip to it. Because they, I've, I've read a lot of reactions to it from those types who are like... Man, it's all about, you know, social in like media and the influencer culture they tweeted to 3,000 followers. And you're like, okay, yeah, I guess. I also think it's kind of fucking lame. Like, it's just kind of, I don't know. It, it's the ultimate byproduct of a guy who wrote for television for years and years and years. And even when he was making movies about kids... One of the big things about Dawson's Creek was the fact that no kid talks like that. Yeah. Even those were like an old dude's interpretation or an older dude at that point, their interpretation of what kids should sound like and a stylized interpretation of that. Everyone's witty as fuck too. Everyone's witty. People have read fucking Chaucer and shit and you're like, yeah, I guess. But like, there's also, there's also that great subplot in Dawson's Creek season two where, uh, Michelle Williams goes undercover as a snitch to bust her dad who's dealing drugs. It's a whole thing. Carrie recently rewatched all of like a bunch of Dawson's Creek. She she gave up about halfway through when we we both realized they're just telling the same story like right. 18 times over and over and over again. But there is a weird subplot in the, the beginning of season two of Dawson's Creek where Michelle Williams turns informant for the cops and you're like, all right. Didn't see this one coming. But anyway, th- my point is more like a guy who is known to make teen melodrama and make these heightened versions of teen melodrama. Eventually, he's going to run out of gas and he's going to just start sounding like an old fart who wants to keep the kids sounding hip or at least kind of be linked into what they're doing. That's this movie. And I think when you pair it with the idea that this guy is the one who's been shaping modern horror for so long, 
there's a reason why Scream is kind of for basics a little bit is because it presents you with this bland, sort of witty, milk toast world that checks a lot of like the diversity boxes, gives you just enough violence, but never enough to really get like too cruel or too off-putting or whatever that like that's for other movies. Our movie's fine. You can watch this with all your friends. You can watch this with your friend who's a cheerleader, or you can watch this with your friend who's a double major at MIT and in like biology and, and astrophysics. You know, like they're all gonna come together because this is as like middle of the road, lowest common denominator type stuff. But it's the best version of that, which is okay, I suppose. Yeah, it's very. Um... It's what we talk about too with like, this is going to sound super pretentious, but it's, it's some horror for non like real horror people, you know? Yeah. And it's like, like walking dead is for me where it's, I don't like walking dead. I never have. And everyone I know who loves it aren't horror fans. Like, well, I don't usually like horror, but I like walking dead. It's like trying to cross over and be also, I think screen four, it is a franchise that branches well out beyond horror fandom. You know, it is the kind of thing that, sure. that, that like even today, normal viewers who don't even usually like horror, like, oh, I know what Scream is and I'll go see that because it's not also a quote unquote normal horror movie. Yeah, no, you 100%. Know? And also it's just part of like our bigger pop cultural spectrum at yes, this point. Yes, very much. And everybody can kind of connect to it. So you want to get to Scream 5? Let's do it. All right. And we're back talking about Scream, really the whole franchise, not just the one from 1996. Now, Martin, we're going to change things up here a little bit. Normally, this would be the segment of each episode where we talk questions questions to one another and kind of ping pong off of each other. This one is where we're going to talk about a modern movie that just came out. Scream or... Scream 5? It's or, just called Scream. We'll just call it Scream 5 today. Just can to, we call it Freem? <laughs> F- five Ream? Five Ream. Yeah. That sounds like an anal sex act. <laughs> anyway, uh, I saw it first because I saw it at a pe- press screening. Quite liked it. But tell me about your reaction because we have not really talked about the movie in depth yet. And you were not as enthused as I You like it, but you're not as enthused as I am. Yeah, I, I saw it. You saw it Wednesday, and I saw it Thursday. So, like, the next day. Um, and I went alone. And I like... I think it's... it's. I like the directors. I like Radio Silence as a group. I like their short stuff they've done, and I've, I've watched them for a while at festivals, and I think they were part of Southbound, that that, that anthology, and then did Ready or Not. Um, they did one of the VHS segments too. I, I believe, believe in VHS two, right? Or I think or it was it one. I think one? it was in their first one. It's one of them. So they've been around, and I've been watching their stuff just for a minute. And they, but ready or not, in the the latest issue of Fangoria is the one that even Williamson cites as being like, yeah, that's what got me on board with these guys. Like, yeah, I mean, you watch that, and it's like very, it's not as openly meta as. 
something like this, but it is playing with horror tropes in a very, you know, very open way. Um, a very obvious way. Yeah. And I, I like ready or not. Like I don't love it, but it's Archer farms. You're next very much. I like the look. I mean, I just love that design of the old mansions. So there's a lot of elements that I think, and I think Samara weaving is like a compelling star that is maybe being overused in horror right now. Everyone's like, Oh, let's get Samara weaving. Let's get Samara weaving. It's like, all right, but use her in an interesting way. Like her just being adorable and covered in blood is not like the only thing you can do. Yeah, but it's she's I, really good in Ready or Not. That's why I, I agree I, with you in like I'm trying to think of Guns Akimbo. Yeah, Guns Akimbo was a bad one because she's really doing almost like a cyberpunk manic pixie dream girl thing in that. Babysitter, Babysitter Baby, 2. Ooh, those movies are rough. But I mean, shouts out to Joe Lynch for basically kind of getting ahead of the curve with Mayhem and yeah. putting her in that first. And also with uh, Steven Yoon. Uh, like he was kind of out there casting these guys before they kind of really hit it with the next level of being big. Yeah. Cause she had just done Ash versus evil dead. And she, yeah. that's where I first, I mean, she's awesome on there. Um, but anyway, I, but I, I do like, I do like their stuff and this one, I mean, easily already better than three and four. I mean, it's not even a debate for me. Um, I also think that it's, they are dealing with this in the film with the idea of what they call a requel or what I call it. We a lot of people call a soft reboot, you know, with like, for instance, force awakens is very or legacy reboot legacy too. reboot. Yeah. So like force awakens, I had in the mind the entire time watching this of, you know, a new generation, you start with them. And then later in the film, you bring in Han Solo and Carrie Fisher. There's a lot of, there's a lot of elements there. And I think Halloween 18 is the other kind of signpost, let's say, but how, 18, there's almost too much of Jamie Lee Curtis for that movie to officially kind of qualify as like a legacy reboot or whatever. It is, but to your point, like they are very much making their own Scream sequel and then also Nev Campbell and uh, Courtney Cox and David Arquette show up but they do very much show up in that limited capacity that the older Star Wars actors do. Yeah, very much. And there's things I like about this one. And I think something we discussed in the past is with the podcast is it's sometimes unfair to certain films in the group. When you watch four films in a series and then watch the fifth one, a, they kind of run together and B, you might already kind of be a little bit tired. And in my case, the TV series. And you, yeah. And I, and we can get into that as well. And I, I do love, I've seen season one of that. Um, I'm halfway through two. Okay. I stopped it into one, which I liked. Um, but this one, I'll just talk about what I like first. If that's cool. I, I think that something you could pitch to me about like, this is, has more a, of a strong young cast of the new generation. I agree. I think the twins are like my favorite characters in the movie of Randy's nephew and niece. Um, the Randy Meeks uh, Memorial Theater is a it, hell of a guy. It's great. Bringing back again, the same actress playing their mom, um, Randy's sister, the first time we've seen Randy's sister since three. It, 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 was, it was cool. Like they were they were doing pullbacks. I like this movie was even doing pullbacks from the bad ones. You know, it's like sure. that's when you know you're really doing that. Where it's like wink, wink. Um, I also we talked about this. I think that David Arquette is probably his best performance as Dewey. As Hands like, down, as, he's so fucking good in this movie. Like he's full on Loomis at certain points of like he's the older. There's more to that, but he's the older hero with the gun. Honestly, I thought he was more like Riggs. 
Like, I got a real Riggs vibe <laughs> off of him. Well, because he's yeah. living in a fucking trailer. He's yeah, he's kind of suicidal. He's yeah. kind of suicidal. He's a disgraced ex-cop. Lost his wife. Obviously, she's not dead. But, like, I, I got a real Martin Riggs vibe from David Arquette in this. And maybe that's why I, I like, really kind of hooked into his performance real early because I was like, hmm, they're really doing something else with Dewey here. Well, and again, like, I mean, we talk about this, but like he and Courtney Cox are no longer together. So who knows? Right. Like he's mixing in somewhat autobiography, maybe just like them no longer being together. Um, I don't want to, again, speak for him. I don't know what he pulled on, but I like that. Um, well, and it's from James Vanderbilt. Like we should note that Williamson didn't write this one. I think he's only on as a producer, uh, but James Vanderbilt, the writer of fucking uh, Zodiac, is writing a screen movie. Well, so here's the thing about Vanderbilt, though. Um, Zodiac's the best thing he's ever written. Oh, well, yeah. But then. And, and Fincher, arguably, yeah, authored a lot of it. But he also wrote Basic. He also wrote um, Amazing Spider-Man 1, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Like, he's kind of a workman. Like, he, he jumps around. I just. Well, and also like he worked, he did work on the the Garfield Spider-Man, but he actually worked on the early ones too, I believe. Not in one and two. He might help. No, no, but I mean like outlines and stuff. He did the same way that like Cameron had a fucking Spider-Man script at one point. Right. He was in contention. Like he had that Spider-Man like kind of, let's say DNA in his blood for at least thirst in his blood for a long time. I think the the one thing that didn't work for me as well in this one and was that the pacing seemed a little bit off. Um, it got a little bit too into the um, the mystery aspect. Because here's the thing, like, one of the reasons I like 1 and 2 is that it also, again, becomes, like, a slasher. Like, there's a big portion that's, like, takes place in one night. It's like, okay, we are now here. Really the final third of the movie. right. And this one feels like it took a while to kind of get there. It's a lot more time spent in daytime Woodsboro and the mystery there. I do think the lead actress is very compelling. And I also think her younger sister are both very compelling characters. I like that it's playing with the, 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 the requel or the, the legacy reboot of, you know, the main character being um, Billy Loomis's daughter in a very, you know, um, Adam Driver in the Force in the the new Star Wars kind of thing of like the next generation. Kid. I didn't think of the the Force Awakens until you mentioned that, and then I was like, oh my god, Billy Loomis is a Force ghost in this. No, the whole thing. It's it's so you know. But I, back to a point I made earlier. You and, also have Jack Quaid in it too. Fucking Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan's kid. Yeah, and and he's great. Like he's and he's had done very well for himself on the boys, and and he's very good at being tongue in cheek. This film, I think, might have just my view might have suffered again from watching the first four like days before I watched it. That I was kind of like, I think I might just be done with this idea. Is I'm not sure I need to see what the next generation has in terms of a meta view of horror. Um, but I, I get what they're going for with the toxic fans. Like it's very much about like these two people who are murdering because the last saw the last stab movie sucked. It's basically what sends them off. Is the last stab movie was basically Halloween Res- Halloween um, Resurrection, where it's just like Buster Rhymes vibe of just like ridiculously over the top. I'm I'm gonna be real though. They showed that like YouTube clip. I want to see like, that trashing it and Ghostface has a platinum face and has a fucking flamethrower. And I was like, well, look, I'm not going to lie. Does this movie suck? 
<laughs> yes. And it's funny because they, 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 a lot of images that they used for trailers and like trailer thumbnails on YouTube was the Chrome yeah. face. And I was like, that actually was kind of fucking cool. Yeah, I'm into this. Like, I want to see that. And, um, but yeah, I mean, overall, like, I think I enjoyed myself, but I think I, I'm just maybe a little bit not sure what more there is to mine from this concept. Um, oh, I don't want more. Like, here's the thing. I loved it. Like, flat out, yeah, this you, is the most excited I've been for, like, a big tentpole, like, IP-driven uh, event film, let's say. And you went in, like, with low expectations, I went too. in expecting to hate this fucking movie. I thought, oh, and I'm not going to lie, during the first scene, and it's one particular thing that happened that's going to make me sound like a fucking madman, but, like... Because at first it, it started to do the thing that I was terrified of is I was I went in with these lowered expectations where I was like, eh, their their commentary on this shit is probably gonna be about like A twenty four movies and how like they're not actually they're elevated horror movies, you know, and and they'll probably talk about reboots and remakes because I mean Halloween was hot and I mean this is doing a very similar thing to Halloween as we kind of already mentioned and also one of the things that I found interesting uh, revisiting Scream Three is that like Nev Campbell in that is basically Laurie Strode totally like in the the later ones when she's all hiding out in like H two O and Resurrection and then also Halloween eighteen too. But like, and it's, it, it happened in the first scene. Like she goes, oh, my favorite movie is The Babadook. And I went, I just felt my, my stomach starting to like turn out. Here we go. And I'm like lowering in my seat. And, and then, you know, he's doing, cause it's a whole play on the first set piece from the original is that um, the little sister gets a call. What's your favorite scary movie? You know, anybody who answers a landline in a scream film is fucked for, you know, from Jump Street. She's answering it. They they play it out pretty close to the original. But like when he asks, he's like, oh, have you seen the Stab movies? And she's like, Stab? Isn't that from like 20 something years ago? Like we wouldn't watch those movies. I like, you know, It Follows, Hereditary, the witch, like she names like just a 24 movies. Yeah. And I sunk even lower in the seat. I was like, this is it. This is what they're going to try to do. They're going to make mentioning the titles of uh, elevated horror movies. Like that's going to be the, the, the extent of the film criticism that's going to go on here. And I'm going to be so bored and I'm going to walk out and the last like third of this podcast is going to be unusable. Cause it's just going to be me groaning over and over again. However, the tension that racks up in that first scene is so good and they film this so slickly and then the killer appears, stomps her ankle and breaks it and then she turns over, tries to, to basically block him from stabbing her and he stabs down and the knife goes through her hand and I sat up in my seat and went, oh shit, we have ourselves a situation. What's <laughs> happening here? And then it just keeps going and that I was totally hooked from there. And then the movie actually becomes a lot the same way that you kind of described with the first scream is that it's doing the thing and it gives you exactly what you want. It gives you the force awakens of, of scream movies, which, okay. Do you really want that? It does it very, very well. It delivers a great set of kids and it delivers the best, most horrific violence 
the whole series has ever seen. Like some of the kills in this are so fucking gross and graphic that I was like, damn, like, because, and especially coming from a series that came from Wes Craven, a guy who reveled in violence, who gave you last house on the left, the left where a woman pisses her pants and then is raped by like a, a cabal of, of Manson, like madmen. Like it was weird to me all the time that screams violence was always a little muted. Mm. Uh, especially like the stabbings and everything. And like these guys fucking go for it. So I like that it brings it all back and it starts acting as a, a, a work of real time genre critic, like criticism again about how movies are made now, how, how everything's driven by IP, how like in order for, to get butts in seats, like we got to give you the nostalgic elements only the character building in this is perfect. Like, of course, Sid is fucking uh, pushing a stroller in some really nice part of the country. Her husband probably has a great job, you know, and she's in yoga pants and doing whatever. Like, she's just moved past it. Like, this is who Sidney Prescott is now. Of course, fucking Gail Weathers, who Courtney Cox not looking great in this. Like, her face is a little ghoulish. However... I feel like that really works for her character in a weird, oh, yeah. inadvertent way because you're like, now she's just the the anchor on a morning show, you know, holding on to whatever fame she has left. Dewey couldn't hack it with her in New York and moves back to Woodsboro, goes to be to be a sheriff, but then basically crawls inside of a bottle and is forced to retire and now lives his Martin Riggs lifestyle in a trailer on the outskirts of fucking town. <laughs> And dude, like at first I was like, ah, oh, this is pretty good. Cause the Sydney Prescott thing doesn't even, she doesn't even show up until about an hour into the yeah, movie. Seriously. But like I was real into it. I thought it was really cooking as a slasher just with all the new kids and everything. But then they get to the Arquette stuff and I got like legitimately choked up at certain parts because I think Arquette does a lot of interesting shit with it in terms of, of exploring Dewey as like an actual person, mm. not just a ca the character of Dewey, but he actually finds a weird amount of like pathos and humanity in this guy who used to be, again, it was parodied in the scary movie uh, franchise by having him stick his dick in a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> like here, now here's this guy. He does Laurie Strode in Halloween 2018 better than Jamie Lee Curtis. Like that's the character that I wish when they were talking about how Laurie Strode is an alcoholic and she's basically just a recluse living on the edges of society, Dewey gives you the real version of that. The guy who wakes up every morning in his living room that's fucking, you know, there's a bottle of cheap uh, bourbon on this old, like, 70s-style, like, glass table. He watches the, the early broadcast so he can see Gale, and he even says at one point, it's, like, such a heartbreaking moment where he goes... I feel good for two hours in the morning each day, and then the rest of the day has to happen. And you're like, Jesus. Like The rest of the time, I drink. Yeah, very, the rest very of the McConaughey. Time I, I drink. <laughs> but I mean, he's so fucking good in it, and you can't believe... Like, he's the guy who showed up and was like, I know exactly what movie we're making, and I'm going to give you, like, the best performance of my life, which makes his death that much more, like horrific and moving like when he died like i got legit like choked up especially with the line it was an honor and he finally goes out and i was like all right you win 
it's you know I think back to what we were talking about early with um just like Scream Two and Scream Three and Scream Four, the the first sequels was that using meta to absolve you from mistakes as a filmmaker, but also absolve you from like the obvious reason of like, this is a cash grab. Like they talk about it in the film where it's like, Oh, we know this is a cash grab that we're making. Um, yeah. They're knowingly, they're knowingly participating in a garish trend, let's say, but that doesn't let them off the hook. That, that's how I felt watching it. And it's interesting to have this come out less than a month after um, Matrix Resurrections, you know, I mean, two films. Yeah, because Matrix Resurrections, its closest cousin is fucking New Nightmare. Yeah, I mean, they're all in a very similar thing. And what's, I think, maybe one of the reasons that I like Matrix Resurrections more than this. Well, it's a better movie. It's a better movie. I love both of them, but Resurrections is better. But Resurrections also, like, the Matrix series is not known for being meta. Like, it's not a meta series until the fourth one. Right. Like, in that way. That that was a breath of fresh air, and that felt and like they, them retooling it. They needed that to make there be a reason. And it was kind of like, oh, man, this is kind of cool, because also the original filmmaker back commenting like, oh, man, they're going to make this movie fuck without me. And I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to make my movie and also comment on the whole thing of, like, we're trying to get one last ounce of money one, one more dollar out of this fucking stone. We're going to bleed it dry. And I didn't feel that. I mean, I didn't feel this film was completely unwarranted. Um, but I think just like watching it, even, even as a slasher, what was I watching? I was, okay. So I saw it at Alamo and they had a, um, they had the kind of pr- the promo video ahead of time that was edited by someone from 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 right. Alamo from Birth Movies Death, and it was like, here's the history of of Scream in like ten minutes, like to get everyone caught up. And he had the who was doing the the kind of visual essay the video essay said, oh, like all slasher films of the early '80s, it's a mystery. I was like, okay, hold the fuck up, like it's not. They were most of them were not like the majority of slasher films. Honestly, Scream is one of the biggest slasher films that has a mystery. Like the, most of the, you know, obviously the classics were, you knew who the killer was as a viewer. You know, you're like, okay, this is Jason. Jason's back. You know, they, of course you had the switch. Yeah, you, of weren't, like, you weren't figuring out who fucking Jason. Well, outside of Friday the 13th. Exactly. And outside of the first one. that wasn't a mystery. It was just revealed at the end that it was his mom. Yeah, you're like, thinking it wasn't it's like Jason. the kids were trying to figure it out the whole time. They were just trying not to die. Yeah, and so... There's the mystery stuff, and I guess the, the Prowler is an example of a mystery one of like who's doing this, and then you have the reveal of it, who it is. Well, it's uh, Giallo. Like here's, right, the, here's right. the thing on Twitter, either the day of or the day. Oh no, the the day of or the day before that I went to see Scream. Some guy, some rando from like the horror community, threw up uh, a, a Twitter prompt that was more or less like, "Hey, for all horror scholars out there." Would you say that Scream is modern giallo? Would that qualify? And Fangoria on their social replied in a very douchey way and just said no. Like no explanation or like real asshole-ish bullshit. But it was like, I actually thought about it for a second. I'm like, "Mm, it kind of is to a certain degree. It isn't, but it has more elements of giallo than the, the average slasher movie does. To your point to where it's like, 
they're not actively trying to figure it out. Like the other one I think of a lot in terms of Scream is Happy Birthday to Me. Yes, to where there's a, a big mystery to it and even the big weird twist ending um, in that very bizarre film. Or April Fool's Day is another one. Like there are slasher movies where the, the, the mystery is key to it. My Bloody Valentine is another really good one that has kind of... But that's of, a twist because that, you that think a, it's Hart, Harry Warden it's the whole time. because it's supposed to be Harry Warden. And yeah, that, yeah, you're right. That one's more... Uh, doesn't work as well, but either way, like th- these are whodunits. They're they're just in line with like Agatha Christie as they are with Wes Craven or, or Sean Cunningham or any of those movies. You know? Yeah, no, I I agree with that, and I think something that it might be just unfair of me. I think sometimes with especially with horror films and with slashers is that I'm so it's so important to me that I have a very specific idea in my mind of what the movie's supposed to be, and if it's not that. That's fair. Then I'm just like, nope, you know. And again, I don't think this film was bad by any means. It just didn't click with me because, same the way that this is a much better film than Halloween 2018, much better film. Um, but with that, certainly better than Halloween Kills. Uh yeah. Well, so is my fucking student film from college, which is garbage, you know. And um, <laughs> but I think that there's something about how much time is spent in some of these modern slasher and these reboots or, or, you know, legacy sequels just not being like stuck at the bad location with the deaths happening. Like if I would have written this film, I would have gotten them to that house at the midpoint. You know what I mean? Just like get there earlier because it's just like, I'm like all right, cool. Like we're going round and round and we're having any good set pieces, but also like just like walking around daytime in Woodsboro trying to figure out who the killer is. It's not enough for me. And like going to the hospital and talking to her sister, like that's where I kind of lost my interest. It's like, just get to the fucking like, See, I thought it was really good because like, again, in putting it in league with a series that was started by a guy who's mostly known for Y18 melodramas. Like I got real sucked into the Y18 melodrama of the new screen movie. Like I really got into the conflict between the sisters and like why she ended up leaving and abandoning her and coming back. Like I thought all of that stuff worked, but it's also why I really liked the movie is that it felt it's the first movie since one and two that felt like a fucking scream movie through and through. I would agree there. There was no dilution of it. There was no, we're going to move it to LA and make it about Hollywood. We're going to make it about social influencers or whatever. It was like, no, because that's the other problem with four is that four is so keyed into the idea of skewering these people that it forgets to make these people fun to be around. So like five, it was just it, it again. It, it just grabbed that big blustery emotion kind of by the throat and just uh, really brought me down with it. It's the same reason why I, re- I know this is a very odd comparison, but kind of works just because of the uh, the the Dawson connection. Let's say I recently rewatched Varsity Blues. Maybe too. Like during oh. uh, the pandemic, I watched it like six months down. ago. Yeah, and like what I, that movie still really really works for me. Because of the, the the teen melodrama. Maybe I'm just a sucker for that type of thing when it's done super duper well. But like, and it's also why I really like the the uh, the the TV show, the Scream TV yeah. series, because the, oh, it's the very Scream much that. Uh, TV series is more or less giallo gossip girl. Like it's just, here's these beautiful people. Let's get involved in all of their love lives and their, their goofy, like squabbles and drama together. And then also here's a murderer. 
So it's like, I don't know. I, I felt like the new one really tapped into what the essence of Scream is for me. And I, I quite enjoyed it. It's, it's, um, cause it is reckoning again with that soft reboot legacy reboot thing of you, a lot of those films come about because of a failed last film. So like Ghostbusters afterlife, which is, you know, from my understanding, very close to the narrative of the original Ghostbusters force awakens coming after what people view is this, this idea of we're going to go back to basics, but this one, I think afterlife is not that afterlife is afterlife does the, the legacy sequel thing. It's not particularly good. It's actually good until the old Ghostbusters show up okay. because it's almost a straight up just goofy, almost feels like, again, like a YA teen like pilot for a new series because it's just, here's the, the kid from Stranger Things. Here's the... Ugly as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Make Ty Sheridan look pretty, boy. I mean, seriously, I would watch Ty Sheridan all day before. Finn but I mean, it has a, it also has a bunch of Carrie Coon. I love her. It too. And then Paul Rudd's like the sexy, cool, like uh, uh, science teacher that's in it. And it feels almost like, oh man, we stumbled, you inherited this home that you're, you're, uh, dad was, who was the Harold Ramis, Harold Ramis. What was he? Was he Egon? E- Egon yeah. yeah. The, his, her grant, the kid's grandfather was a Egon. They find all his shit and the old like ghostbuster car, but it's kids doing this stuff. So it has a very stranger thing sort of vibe that I, I found a lot of fun. And then they actually start fighting ghosts and like gozer and shit comes back and you're like, I get, like it's when it that's the best example of the bad version of this in terms of like what the, like maintaining the or managing the legacy elements is that when the legacy elements actually show up in that it tanks the movie because I was like I was real into these kids like they were having fun there were some ghosts Paul Rudd was cracking wise and making out with Carrie Coon like sure man like I can dig this and then like the corpse of Bill Murray just shambles in and starts telling <laughs> jokes and you're like, oh, I guess. And then there is force ghost. I'm sorry. I heard about for this. Anybody. There's force ghost Harold Ramis at the end. It's ghoulish. Like I cannot <laughs> stress how hard he showed up. I had 10 minutes left. I almost stopped the movie and was like, Nope, you fucked it up for good on that one, man. Like it sucks. <laughs> When they all fucking show up, you're like, this is what people, like, you know what people make fun of with these fucking things? Like, you're doing it. You're doing the thing that they hate. But they, you know, anyway. But it's, I mean, this film is reckoning with that kind of, this modern idea of. Well, and again, it gives you a reason to care about these characters while it reckons with it. Like, I love Dewey. I like their their romance. Like, the whole scene where he goes, I was a coward. And, like, basically confesses to that. Like, that shit feels fucking real. And she's like, you're not a coward. You're the yeah. one thing you're not. It, you know, it's. I agree because I, I will say it does. I, I think, again, my problems with this film is I might just be done. Like, I think I'm just like, all right. Because, sure. again, one thing I'll just say for the audience is, like, I like Scream. But, like, I'm not a huge Scream fan. Like I'm in I, the same boat. I like, I think we're, we're similar. Like, and... I like the films it references more than I like the Scream films for the majority. It's like I I watch Final Exam a whole lot more than I watch Scream. That's not a good like Scream's a better movie, but I enjoy the ones it references more than the meta narrative that it's created. You know who I was thinking about a lot um, to to bounce off of your point with the Final Exam comment. 
Um, I was thinking about when Randy first shows up in Scream. Is you ever see uh, He Knows You're Alone? Oh, I love that with Tom Hanks. Where Tom Hanks is basically playing the, like proto Randy, yeah. where he starts He's super talking about nerdy. slashers and stuff too on their date. I don't know. Th- that came to mind too. But I'm in the same boat as you are to where like. Unlike Pulp Fiction, which I, I compared this to, like Pulp Fiction was an, an entire doorway into a whole different like realm of filmmaking with the grindhouse stuff and the the Italian exploitation and kung fu stuff that he's referencing. Like he's literally just opening treasure chests and being like, dig in, have fucking fun. You haven't seen any of this shit, yep. but I have, and it's great. Screams referencing stuff that you probably have seen, and if you haven't, you can seek out and get pretty easily, and it's pretty accessible. Like, I don't think anybody's turning on John Carpenter's Halloween for the first time, even in 2022, and being like, this sucks balls, dude. Yeah, it's, um, I, I just think... I'm a little bit, I might be a little done with just the meta and also just like meta narratives in general. Like, again, I like matrix resurrections, but it, it just, it feels like a cop out sometimes of again, like you can't critique us well, because we're this, aware of what we're doing. This might be a good note for us to end on in terms of uh, just what scream has done in terms of a legacy and maybe why you've been tired uh, by the time you get to a new Scream reboot quill or whatever we're calling it, is that we've also now sat through an entire generation of filmmakers that cemented John Carpenter as maybe the greatest cinematic influence of the 80s. Like, how many movies from the indie scene during the, the 2010s just randomly had a John Carpenter synth score? Yep. Or was doing, like, a Fulci knockoff. Like, half those things that are produced by, like, Glass Eye Picks. Ty West, the new trailer for his A24 movie shows up. And it more or less is Ty West being like, what if they shot a porno during Texas Chainsaw Massacre days? And you're like, I don't fucking care! Like, everybody on Twitter... People are losing like their the minds. Whole, like, that Fangoria trailer crowd and stuff and everything are like, this looks so fucking good and stuff. I'm like, this looks like shit. This looks like fucking like Ty West doing Rob Zombie. I don't want this. Like, I don't want an A24 Rob Zombie movie. I want Rob Zombie to make Rob Zombie movies. And I want Ty West to make something new. I don't want you to make the new fucking, like the new Jim Jones movie. I don't need you Ugh. to make House. Like here, perfect example, House of the Devil, a movie I actually quite like but is just steeped in nostalgia for another time that uh, Ty West didn't exist during. Yep. He's not, he's like our age. He's at early 40s, I think. Yeah, he's from Delaware. No, yeah. we're, we're about the same age. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, I, I feel like maybe that's part of your fatigue as well, is that, like, if you actually have been an active uh, indie horror fan, you've reckoned with what scream has left behind mm, for you that's so for, smart. for, for yep. decades at this point. So why do you need a reboot? You like, we've been thinking about this stuff for too long. The, I think we, we had a few too many beers, uh, the week we were seeing it and we were kind of bullshitting. It might've actually been the night that we watched new nightmare and stuff together, but we kicked the idea around to where we're like, you know what the most radical thing a scream reboot could be? Just a straight slasher. Yes. With no please. meta text, no new characters, no nothing. And it's co- it's part of what makes the, the Scream TV series so good is that it's literally like, you know Scream. 
Like, you get it. You know what it fucking is. You've sat through four of these fucking things at this point, and, like, now you're going to sit through a fucking TV series. So, like, if you've signed up for this, you get what the vibe is. That's what we're doing. We're just doing the vibe, but we're, we're using it as, like, a TV series, and we're stretching it out, and it does it's do... like Fargo series. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it does do a little bit of meta-tech stuff of, like, especially in the first episode, like... The Randy surrogate kid, who's actually played by the the guy I think is the best actor in it, this John Karna kid. He's great. Really, really good. Um, but Super likable. Yeah, he's great. He uh, he literally goes, you can't turn a slasher movie into a TV series. <laughs> like, you just can't do it. And honestly, the, mo- the, the series, perhaps by accident, kind of proves its own thesis over the course of 10 episodes or whatever it is, because... There's so much filler to it, and it's but that's where all the teen melodrama comes in, the gossip girl Dawson's type elements, to where it's like you're either on board for this or you're like, eh, when's the killer show up again? Blah blah blah. But I mean, again, we we've sat through all of this, like especially us guys who have worked in the industry and have covered this stuff and whatever. Like we've watched every new horror movie that's come our way, and like it's time. Like, somebody needs to make the next scream. And by that, I mean somebody needs to make the next thing that's, like, the total kick in the nuts for the genre. Because I feel like we're almost at the point that uh, we were at when the original scream came out. Because we've just hit this weird rut of, like... It's either some A24 elevated horror stuff, which I really like. I really like It Follows. I like The Duke. I like all those movies too. But I also know to what I'm extent. getting at this point. Yeah. They're very much like both Ari Oster movies. Love them. But like I pretty much know what the next Ari Oster horror movie is going to look like too because the first two looked almost identical. Or at least like thematically. And like we know what we're getting with these elevated horror movies the next big scream is just something that we don't like we can't predict and is just going to totally like be a shot in the arm that nobody saw coming yeah i mean it's not it's not the i totally agree actually i was at a um I was at texas frightmare like 3 year, 3 or 4 years ago and uh, ryan turk was there who worked for blumhouse and um he there people were asking him kind of like what do you think is like what needs to happen next in horror he goes whoever cracks the slasher is the next thing and I totally agree with him. Not just horror, but the slasher. Whoever can figure out how to make the neo-neo slasher for our generation that is not influenced by Scream at all. It's also not postmodern in a new way. Um, some way to like, like you kind of talked about, I think, with the French Extremity films of maybe it's going back to the, the brutality. Um, or you think about how Hollywood and... and um, international film works in cycles. You know, we, we think about like a lot of series, it, it gets to its goofiest and then is rebooted. So you have like die another day, casino Royale, Batman and Robin, Batman begins. It's like this kind of like the way we, we, we move to its most extreme and ridiculous and then, okay, gritty reboot, you know? And I don't think we need a gritty reboot of scream or slashers, but I don't know what it would, it, maybe it's something, something real and hard and like, well, and it's also like to bring it all the way back to the, the beginning of what we were talking about in terms of like the movies being acts of actual real time like criticism. Yeah, is we have to figure out what the criticism of the genre is first that you're bringing into whatever's new and going to more or less recontextualize it into yeah. a new piece of like horror fiction. Is that 
Like, if you have another slasher movie about the final girl, you've lost. If yeah. you have another uh, slasher movie that talks about any of the rules, you've lost. If you have another slasher movie that's all about trauma and, like, persistence and everything, you've lost. The next slasher movie and the next one that totally unlocks uh, the, the keys to the genre kingdom, let's say, is going to also criticize the stuff that came before it. It's going to make the observation that nobody else has thought of before. We just don't know what that is yet. Yeah, absolutely. But Martin, it's been a pleasure as always. Indeed, sir. And this has been Secret Handshake. We'll see you all next time. See you then. Take my hand.